Well, here it is, another Friday afternoon, Green Rush Live. Hi, everybody. I thank God every day, but especially on Fridays, because it is the beginning of the weekend, if your your week actually ends on Saturday or Sunday. I worked weekends for 30 years, folks, so I know what a Wednesday through Sunday schedule is all about. That being said, we've got a great show for you all over the next couple of hours here. Uh, I'm going to be joined by a very special guest host, who has his regular show called The Talking Hedge. His name is Josh Kincaid. He hails from Seattle, Washington. Josh, welcome to the guest hosting position of Green Rush Live. Thanks, Jimmy. Tell us a little bit about your background rather than me writing, uh, reading about, you know, you were a portfolio risk analyst, blah, 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 blah. Tell us a little bit about your background. Go ahead. So I left uh, Wall Street uh, about nine years ago, I was managing a $650 million fund with Capital One, jumped into the cannabis space, naively thinking I could start a cannabis cafe. And there was a class C felony that was put on cannabis cafe specifically in Washington state. So I jumped on board to write a, uh, a bill to try and overturn that. Fast forward six years later, chairman of that committee, nothing's happened yet. <laughs> COVID didn't help. Um, but learned a lot, right? I don't think practice makes perfect. I think failure does. And there's been a lot of projects I've been a part of in the cannabis industry as a consultant with the Super Chronics, uh, things I've reported on with the Talking Hedge podcast and things I've seen. And uh, it's, a, it's a brutal industry. So excited to see from you know an attorney's standpoint, the, uh, the challenges and uh, issues from a compliance, just from that standpoint alone, it's going to be an interesting conversation. Absolutely. And uh, joining us now from the law firm, law firm Greenspoon Martyr, are our, our two attorneys, Nick Richards and Michael Berwick. Guys, uh, thank you both for coming on today. And I appreciate you delaying it one week uh, because I had we had no choice. Uh, that being said, Nick, uh, how are you doing? Josh, uh, 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 I'm getting uh, last time I was on this show, the guest guy, he was really tough on me. And so I'm um, I'm getting ready for you, Josh, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting really serious over here, Jimmy. Um, so, you know, you got the lawyers on, and uh, we're dressed for the occasion, and um, I'm ready to go. All right, and <laughs> Michael, you certainly have a tough act to follow. Uh, that's all I got to say. How are you doing? I'm okay, Jimmy. I'm not even going to try to follow that, but it's I, I, I'm speechless. I just got Nick is is sort of my uh, our fearless leader of our cannabis group at Greenspoon Martyr, and you're, you're beginning to understand why. It's really yes. it's a combination of intellect, experience, and what we in the law call the catch-all. You know, all of the above. And I think what you just saw would fall into the catch-all. It's a, it's uh, he is a tough act to follow. Yeah, but I'll tell you what. Uh, I love the personality and I love someone who is very uncomfortable being on camera. Right. I mean, you know, that's the thing. That's and- I'm hiding behind the glasses, Jimmy. <laughs> I like that look actually. It's awesome. It's just awesome. I- and, and, yet, no, Jimmy, and yet, Jimmy, we're really excited to be on the show today and really excited to talk to your audience. And it's great to work with you. And, um, uh, is it, are we talking taxes today? I, 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 I you know, I, I gotta say as a, as a lead into that, you know, because I, I do want to be co-host one time too, you know, um, but, okay. uh, you know, taxes got sexy when cannabis came along. Okay. So there you go. No, Wait, no, no. Did you say I, something about taxes 
guys, I had the memo here different. I thought we were talking about Texas, but now, <laughs> Texas. Oh, oh. <laughs> this is this is great. We've we've unleashed a couple here here we have very serious attorneys on our show on Friday afternoon and 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 they're the ones that are that are uh, carrying on with their personalities, which is fine guys because um you're going to be on for an hour, so we we have some time to kill and and fill and I I certainly appreciate that. When I uh get asked a lot whenever people come up to me and know that I'm in the cannabis space, they always say you know, what's a good investment, you know, and, you know, by the way, I have no idea about investing. That being said, I always say invest in a good law firm because they're going to be successful no matter what the law says, because they're going to either write the law or they're going to challenge the law. Is that accurate? Yeah. (laughs) Who's going to take that that one? Well, we have challenged a few laws. Uh, Absolutely. Um, I haven't written any myself. I've tried to tell the IRS how to write a few. Um, They they don't seem to like what I say generally. But um, uh, um, yeah, I think that's right. Um, And, you know, I think that it's, it's, you know, we're, we're sort of creating the rules as we go in many situations. And a lot of times you need a good lawyer to be able to help um, the regulators understand um, it, you know, how, how to come to the right decision. And uh, that's sometimes an interesting dance. You know, you don't, you, you, you know, most regulators don't want you to tell them they want, you know, they want to get to that on their own. And, and sometimes that takes somebody who's uh, somewhat artful in the uh, art of persuasion, which my friend Mike is, is, is amazing. Yeah, I, he, he persuaded me long ago. <laughs> and he, I, thank you thank i'll take all of that i'm a leo so it's all good but i i would add to that i think nick's got me now at, at, at sort of like uh in the sort of the the um the aquarius kind of uh, stage but um uh, i think i would add to that jimmy that um everything that nick said with an exclamation point but i would i would add to that that um it's really i see our role kind of as the navigators um and you know to the extent that there's lack of clarity there on what you know to 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 continue the analogy there's there's charts there if you will um that are um put in 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 place by not only the congress but by the executive um branch in terms of how those laws are enacted on a more granular level. And it's sort of our job. And, and by that, I mean the IRS and so forth. It's our job to sort of chart that course for our clients while staying on track and, and coloring within the lines. But there's also, um, in some cases, a lack of clarity. And, and I think what we like to do is, without coloring outside the lines, is push a little bit at, um, at some of the boundaries that are are set up in terms of pushing back and saying, hey, you know, you didn't make this clear at all. What did you mean by this? And, you know, and that and that kind of thing. And, you know, it just matters, you know, to the extent that we do that on really what the risk tolerance is of of the client. And sometimes we have clients that are more aggressive um, from an ROI standpoint, and they'd like to really push it. And sometimes we have clients that are saying, you know what, I don't want to get wrapped up in a back and forth with the IRS or with any other governmental organization. I'm comfortable just staying right within the 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 parameters of uh, of the um, of the map, if you will. 
And, and, and this is when I get to call on Josh to ask the first question. And I'm, and I'm not even going to tee him up because he knows the most obvious question to ask uh, when you're talking about taxes in the cannabis space. How's that? Is that teeing you up, Josh? Go ahead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer to ADE for a second because I had a follow up. Um, <laughs> I wanted to know what, what kind of keeps you guys up at night. You talked about kind of navigating and not having clarity. So is it the, the valuations are kind of sketchy? You got $420 million valuation, seems kind of arbitrary, seems like you're going to have investor lawsuits at some point. What keeps you up at night? Is it the valuations? Is it compliance and lack thereof? Is it federal intervention at some point? That's what keeps me up, by the way. <laughs> Go ahead, Nick. What keeps you up at night? Don't and and make it clean, <laughs> will you please? Thank you. <laughs> you saw where I was going. Uh, no, no. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. Federal intervention does not concern me, um, and and so I, I want to make that clear. Um, and, and you know, I think that I've been in the uh, in the cannabis industry for almost ten years now. I'd say, and um, I have never seen, um, you know, the, the the feds come down on um, a, a professional in a legalized cannabis, um, uh, you know. Uh, industry in a way that I thought was, you know, like you used to see, right? Um, so, uh, so not that I don't, I don't stay up on that. I, you know, I, I worry, I worry for my clients. Um, and, you know, as you approach, um, with me, it's usually about money, uh, we're going to get to taxes next. And, and so taxes are almost always about money. And, you know, there are events that come up in, in uh, challenging the IRS or the state or the local authorities around tax matters. And, you know, in the end, it comes down to that money. And, and um, that'll, that'll keep me awake at night when those events are coming down. And I'll, I'll hope that I can do as good for my client as I hope to. And, and that is the root of all evil. Michael, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, again, just to, just to um, play off what, what Nick said a little bit, um, I, I don't, you know, I think what we try to do in our practice is to foresee um, eventualities down, down the road. I think one of the things that gives me great comfort in the cannabis space is I, I try to, I always go back, it's even in my bio at the firm. Um, most people at this point, you know, after practicing for almost 30 years as, as I have, have forgotten their undergraduate education in terms of scratching their head and saying, what did I even do as an undergrad? I had a very powerful undergraduate education um, majoring in, in sociology and psychology, which seems, you know, a little bit, unless I were maybe a family law attorney or something like that, it seems very far afield from practicing tax corporate um, securities, et cetera, which is sort of the backbone of, of, of my practice. Um, but when you get into spaces uh, like I am in terms of industries, cannabis, very heavy, um, sports uh, law, entertainment law, um, very heavy. Um, all of this really comes in. And I really try to, um, uh, one of the things that I really try to do is not only on a micro level to understand where my clients are coming from, what their needs are, what their goals, not just as a business or an entity, but as human beings. I try to do that on a macro level as well. Just to give you an example, um, New York State is now giving priorities. I just read this yesterday, I think. That's right. Uh, yep. Giving priority to, in terms of, of licensing, to those that have been you know, convicted under past laws or, or, or had issues with um, with cannabis law, um, uh, with with possession and so forth, and under you know under laws that are now that are now moot in in the state of uh, of New York. So 
microcosm, yes, but I feel like we're coming around as far as cannabis goes. As Nick said, you know, the first thing that we do as attorneys, the priority of all is to protect our clients. So in that sense, I think the thing that keeps me up most is to is is the idea that a regulator, in this case, perhaps the IRS, um, hasn't necessarily caught up with um, the emerging state of, of the law and that we know we're going to win. We know we're right on the law, but it's a matter of we don't want to have to fight needless battles, which costs our clients money. Um, and, and contrary to popular belief, as lawyers, our objective is not to run up our clients' tab. It's, we want to be doing things that are proactive, that are going to make our clients more money and expand their business. We don't want to get embroiled in a battle with a regulator of any sort um, on the client. That's money that the client considers wasted, but perhaps necessary. We don't want to do anything to make it more necessary. And um, Nick and Michael, I, I've talked to Michael a couple of weeks ago, and he explained to me uh, something about the tax code that you guys have figured out that may kind of have a big impact on the farming industry. Which one of you guys wants to explain that? I think we'll both we'll both work on it. But Nick, you want to open it up at a high level and I can, you know, work on it from there. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a there's a, a practice in the in the uh, the ag world outside of cannabis, uh, whereby income is deferred. And uh, so we're looking at some income deferment um, strategies. And um, it, it, my, my involvement in that is looking at whether or not Section 280E would impact those strategies. And um, we don't see that it does. Uh, Section 280E, Josh, uh, affects deductions and credits. And um, the, these ag strategies are, uh, are income deferment strategies, which uh, Section 280E does not impact. Um, there's nothing in the, um, in the IRS rules that says that, that I can find that says that a cannabis or that an, an illegal, you know, somebody who grows something illegally isn't a quote farmer for purposes of the internal revenue code. So, um, uh, you know, it, these, these, uh, methods are out there and, um, uh, they've been used by ag, uh, for a long time. And so we're, uh, we're trying to, to help our clients out and see if we can't utilize some of these strategies um, in order to uh, save them some money. Michael, do you want to expound on that a little bit and, and do me, do us all a favor and explain what that 280E clause is, just okay. to, in case people aren't familiar with that and, and really don't understand it. Go ahead. Well, Jimmy, if you're in the cannabis industry, you know what, I'm sorry, Mike, so I'm um, going to go back to you for the 280E explanation okay. because you live and breathe that world. I okay. mean, you know what it is, but I'm going back to you because whenever right. somebody needs a good explanation of 280E, I said, hold on a minute. I'm going to get the the, the Encyclopedia Britannica of 280E on the phone and it's the a next four digits I push so I'm, so I'm, It's okay. I can I can handle it. Um, Okay. Uh, no, it's okay. uh, it's it it basically makes it so that cannabis companies cannot take their deductions, uh, and so Section 280 something says something like, uh, no deductions are allowed for a trader business that traffics in a Schedule One or Two controlled substance, um, and so a deduction is a special creature in the tax code that for businesses are allowed to take a current 
deduction of costs rather than having to put them onto something like cost of goods sold or something like that. So it's uh, where, where you have to wait till something is sold or wait till your basis is recuperated or something else like that. You get to take that cost now. And so 280E says, hey, cannabis industry or traffickers in controlled substances, which Jimmy, by the way, in, which should include the illegal opioid industry. And there is a, the IRS is not looking at those guys uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm getting a little bit of skew here, but that's something that I, I, I need, I want to talk about, um, because it, it, they're in violation of the Controlled Substances Act too. 280E says Schedule One or Schedule Two. Um, anyway, that, that, that's what 280E is. It, it, it is a, it is a creature of the war on drugs. Uh, it was created in order to take the profits out of um, selling illegal drugs. Uh, and it has been used in many ways uh, it, it, that, it, that have been disproportionately um, uh, horrible for uh, minorities uh, and, um, you know, people of color and everything else. Uh, and so it, it is all tied to that. And it really works. It does take the profit out of, out of uh, most marijuana businesses. And it hurts the little guy way more than it hurts the big guy because it creates really, really, really thin margins, which, you know, if you have you know, higher volume, you can still make money off of. Um, but if you're a mom and pop, you're scraping by. Right. Wait, Jimmy, it, that's it, the perfect segue. It really is. I, I, Nick really teed it up in a multitude of ways that he may not even be aware of. Um, the, Nick's reference to the, to the war on drugs and to the fact that so much of these, uh, so many of these opioids and everything are not on that schedule or not 280E. Um, I guess I would preface what I'm going to say by the fact that so much of what goes on, even in areas as mundane to most people, exciting to people like Nick, myself, but um, as tax law is highly political, highly, highly political. And Nick explained uh, in a way that is detrimental um, how political some of this stuff is in, in referencing the war on drugs, referencing um, social justice issues and racial justice issues and uh, the, the adverse effect that um, some of these laws have had over the years on people of color, minorities, etc. I'm going to reference something that happened to be political. Now it's over 100 years ago, so the politics was a little bit different, but that actually creates an opportunity. And that's actually, in retrospect, not a bad thing. Let's go back 103 years or so. I think my math is right, but um, I was told by Jimmy uh, and Josh that there would be no math. Um, but when we were more of an agrarian society and when um, to that end, uh, farmers and regular, I'm not talking about cannabis farmers or hemp farmers, or I'm talking about just plain old vanilla farmers, okay, had commanded a much bigger presence in Washington, DC in terms of their lobbying power and so forth. So where am I going with this? You've got a code section in the Internal Revenue Code called 453 or 453. It is the installment sale provision. Now, what does that mean? If, if I wanna buy Jimmy's house, but I can't get a loan from a bank and Jimmy wants to sell me his house, all right? Jimmy can do seller financing, okay? And the tax code makes it possible for me to pay Jimmy some combination of principal and interest, you know, year in and year out, 
um, and uh, 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 Jimmy to be able to, to, to time the payment of um, taxes upon his income to when he receives it and so forth and so on. Now for 20 years, I've been involved in, in legal per the IRS, black letter law, no tax shelters or anything funky, um, tax deferral strategies. 1031 exchanges on real estate and 453 using for the sale of businesses and other highly appreciated assets from, from a capital gains perspective, okay? So when you sell something really big and you've got major capital gains liability on an asset that you've been paying taxes on for year, years and years and years and years, um, you know, the idea that you're not going to get hit with a monster tax in, in one year, and we're going to work that out and time it and everything else. Now, I could talk to you for three hours on that. I won't. Um, but in my work with 453, one of the things that I uncovered, and I did this in consultation with some people from outside the firm and, and so forth, but we've really embraced this in the ag space um, as, a, as a firm, um, is the idea that Companies like International Paper, Land O'Lakes Butter, uh, Blue Diamond Almonds, and hundreds of other large ag producers use 453, and here's where the politics comes back in, and certain safe harbors that are baked into 453 that most people outside of big, big um, ag corps don't know anything about. Um, to actually time the payment of taxes and create a situation where no taxes are paid in a current year and all the money comes back to them and those taxes are kicked way forward and some money is placed into a fund so that there's the creation for pennies on the dollar of the eventual payment of those taxes 30, 40, 50 years down the road. And to Nick's point, all of that money, and in California, we're talking about, for example, a combined tax rate of over 50%, 37% on the federal and over 13% on the state. And here's where the math does come in. Now, instead of paying 49 and change, uh, receiving 49 uh, cents and, and change on the dollar, okay, our strategy will actually return 100 cents on the dollar less whatever fees are involved and they're nominal compared to the to the tax savings to the grower of almonds or whatever now when nick and i got together we said we scratched our heads and said would this be applicable to cannabis as well does cannabis fit in with that ag exception and i give a lot of credit to nick for really opening that door and what we found and what nick alluded to earlier in our discussion was that it does and it, it really, this will blow the doors off of a can, the, the cannabis growing industry, potentially extending to dispensaries and stuff. I want to focus right now on the growers for the sake of this conversation, because we know it applies to them. And we're talking about not paying any taxes in the current year, creating for a small amount of money, a fund to pay the taxes way down the road and being able to deploy all of that income and revenue back into the operation currently. Hi, we, we're uh, right up against the 420 mark on Friday afternoon. Um, when we come back, 
Michael's going to explain exactly what he said so that I can understand it. Okay. And I'm guessing you guys too. Uh, Let me ask before we go to the break, Michael, do you know who Jonathan Edwards is? Sure. Oh, good. Nick Richards. Have you ever heard Shanty by Jonathan Edwards? Play it for me, Jimmy. All right. Josh, Seattle. Have you ever heard of Jonathan Edwards and, and Shanty? No. Okay. This is my song, my 420 song, okay? When we heard this song on the radio back in the 70s, this was the song that triggered uh, activities. We didn't go to the Louis Pasteur statue like the guys from California did. We just lit up, okay? I'm perfectly honest about that. It's exactly what we did. Uh, This is Jonathan Edwards. We always take this break at 420 on Friday. Uh, Listen to it. You'll enjoy it. And when we come back, we're going to get more into how this little legalese, if you will, can change not just the cannabis growing community, but the whole farming world. That is what we'll talk about when we come back. Don't go away. Green Rush Live continues after this. Yeah, this is a a tune that uh, I wrote back in 19... (laughs) I've forgotten. We had a saying in our old old band, one of my first bands in 1966 or so. What are you going to do tonight? Oh, just... You know, like every other night, just going to lay around the shanty and put a good buzz on. Going to sit down in the kitchen, fix me something good to eat. Make my head a little high, make the whole day complete. Going to lay around the shanty all and put a good buzz on Pass it to me, baby Pass it to me slow We'll take time out to smile a little Before you let her go We're gonna lay around the shanty Oh, mama, put a good buzz on something go ahead Rick Brodsky everybody Nothing to do and there's always room for more Fill it light and shut up and close that door, baby We're gonna lay around the shanty, mama And put a good buzz on Take it, okay
Prohibition never works. It's time to realize it. It grows in my backyard. It's time to legalize it. We're going to lay around the shed and mama and put a good buzz on. jamming into drive. We're gonna head on out and play at WSCA with Sean. I'm glad I'm alive. We're gonna lay around the shanty mama and put a good buzz on every night and day. We're gonna lay around the shanty mama and put a good buzz on. Nice. It's Friday. Thank God. Thank God Jonathan Edwards is joining us live in the WSCA studios. Pro Cannabis Media and PCM TV programming is supported by Revolutionary Clinics in Massachusetts, the number one medical dispensary where the patient comes first. And by Salient Systems for Video Surveillance. You've got regulations, Salient has solutions for your security needs. And by Accounting Buds, your number one accounting solution for the cannabis industry. And by TCP's Style Lighting Grow Kit, all you need to grow. Josh, that's your cue. (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to do a show reset or not? Uh, It's all you, Jimmy. Yeah. All right. All right. You know, it's not difficult. I bet Nick can do it. Nick, can you do Hi, it? Welcome back. My name's Nick Richards here with Pro Cannabis Media. I got me the biggest stars in the whole land today. I got Josh. I got Jimmy. I got Michael. We are rolling. <laughs> that That's actually pretty good, Nick. I got to tell you. <laughs> the name of the show, of course, is Green Rush Live. We're here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern time on Pro Cannabis Media. And we are talking with a, a few of our attorney friends from Greenspoon Martyr. They're a law, national law firm that is based in, are you based in Littleton, Colorado, Nick? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I go home there. Okay. I, I do. I go home there. <laughs> so is it Denver? Uh, our, our, uh, so we have uh, 26 offices across the country. Uh, our headquarters is in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm based in Littleton, (laughs) but that's Denver. You see behind me there. That's not Littleton. I get it. All right. I get that. All right. Now, before we went to the break and heard Jonathan Edwards, um, sing shanty, I threw a question into the chat room. The first person to email me at my company email. And I put that in the chat room, the name of the three counties that make up the Emerald triangle will get one of our. Limited edition, because I've only got about 46 of these, uh, Pro Cannabis Media t-shirts with my signature saying, it's a whole new world of weed. Here, I'll do it this way. Right, Dan? There we go. Very nice, Jimmy. You notice right. how he says 46. He knows exactly how many, how many he's signed and how many t-shirts are there. 
I haven't, it's not I haven't, about 50. It's not about 45. He knows there's 46 T-shirts. 46. That's right. I mean, I, one I, thing, I, got, I got that chat box up. I don't see anything in there. Well, I'm, uh, I'm waiting to see if anybody uh, has emailed me yet. And no, I have not seen that, but I'll go back to us. And uh, okay, so John Phantom says Humboldt is one. That was the easiest one. And by yeah. the way, at this point, okay, there is something called Google that you could probably find this out in a matter of seconds and you email me at Jimmy at Pro Cannabis Media and I'll send you a t-shirt. All right. So uh, let's go back to the tax strategy that you guys have uncovered and um, how how revolutionary is this and who knows about this now, guys? Nick, you want me to take this or you want to do it? Everything we do is revolutionary, Jimmy. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I can't, uh, I, I've been to that Green Triangle area many times, but I can't remember any of it. Okay. That being said, is this tax strategy going to change the farming industry? Nick? It is being used in the farming industry generally. It does change the, I mean, change the industry um, is, is a big word, Jimmy. Uh, it'll keep, it'll put more people, more money in people's pockets. Uh, it'll allow them to grow companies um, and utilize their their uh, their revenue in their in their early years uh, to grow their company and defer their tax liability to later years when you know they can hopefully take those funds and invest them and 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 get to a point where um, where they where the economics make sense on all of that kind of stuff and, and they do uh, generally in time value of money uh, um, theory and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I would say, uh, as as far as the cannabis industry goes, it, it's particularly attractive because, you know, we're, we're, we mentioned social equity earlier, right? And um, expungement clinics and stuff like that. We're looking back now and we're saying, wait a minute, that was not fair. That was not right what happened to those people. Well, if you're in the industry right now, you're saying the same thing about Section 280E, that that's not right. That can't, you know, it was... It was a, a thorn in the, and, a, and, a, and a stab to the industry's heart because everyone thought it would not be true. And when it turned out to be true, it was so painful that it, was, that it really is the thing that is holding the industry back. And so if you can take that and push it off into the future and delay the, the, the event, maybe in the future there is no 280E tax. Maybe we've at that point we've come to the position of, hey, wait, that wasn't fair. We should, we should give... We should give that back too, right? Uh, and I'll also say that the law on Section 280E is not yet resolved. We don't really yet know uh, if it is truly constitutional or not beyond the, um, the United States tax courts and the lower federal courts rulings because the Ninth Circuit failed to rule on the constitutional questions right, in the right. patient's mutual case. And so there's, 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 you know, you know, I, that, that's hopeful. It probably, you know, if you've been following the cannabis uh, various things out there, you know, you, you learn not to be hopeful, right? <laughs> um, right. But yeah, uh, uh, um, generally speaking, delaying uh, a taxable event is a good thing. All right. Yeah. Go but ahead, Michael. Go ahead. I would go, I'd go one step beyond where, where Nick went. I think, again, being sort of a, a student of of Washington, D.C. and what goes on there. 
I think when you've got an institution like the Supreme Court and people say, oh, Supreme Court, and they try to divide up six, three conservative justices, liberal justices, and you've got, you know, rumblings and some offhanded comments by the most conservative member, perhaps, of the court, that being Justice Thomas, um, you know, about, about, you know, everything with respect to, um, you know, to, to cannabis and, and enforcement of cannabis laws and, and scheduling and everything else. I think that there is an awareness on the, the entire political uh, spectrum with, with some notable exceptions. You're going to have some people probably that still believe in the prohibition of alcohol and, and you know, you're never going to change those people. But I think it is an absolute, you know, minority in Washington, small m minority, um, that, you know, that is still under the impression that people need to be protected, um, you know, from, from cannabis. Um, as far as revolutionary goes, I mean, you take 280E, which is a huge, a huge uh, thorn in the side financially of, of growers out there, um, but you just take any business. It, it, it's not, and again, I, I'm looking at this from an equity standpoint. I'm, what, one of the things that I try to do and one of the things that's a hallmark of my practice outside the cannabis industry is to take some of the tricks that I've learned in dealing with entities of, of considerable wealth, as well as high net worth and ultra high net worth families, individuals, um, couples, et cetera, and to try to bring some of those tricks of the, of, of the trade down to your, your, your regular, more run of the mill people. And the idea that from a general ag standpoint, there is a legal way to time and defer and take some control back over the way, the timing, the amount and so forth. Ultimately, you're gonna pay the same amount of taxes, but do you wanna pay those taxes now? Or do you wanna set a few dollars aside each month and pay them, let them accrue and pay them 40 or 50 years from now? Um, that's all completely legal, kosher, whatever word you wanna use within the, the framework of the IRS. We're not going outside the black letter law of the Internal Revenue Code for anything that we do in the tax deferral area. Notice I didn't say tax avoidance area, tax deferral area, but that deferral <clears throat> is worth a lot of money in the pockets of, of growers of all different types of agricultural products, including cannabis and, and the power that they have um, to reinvest in their businesses to expand, to diversify. Maybe they don't want to be solely in cannabis. Maybe they want to take some of that money that they would have paid to the government and invested in Berkshire Hathaway stock, whatever. They can do that. And that makes them more powerful. It gives them more, more staying power as, 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 as companies. And you know they, they need to be around for a while because this industry is, is solid, it's growing. And you know we don't want to see this industry get dominated by you know a handful of, of of powerful entities, we want to see this be a democratic you know institution where everybody can play. Yeah, it's fair, and certainly the pie is big enough. Josh, I want to get your reaction to what you just heard from our two attorney friends, and what impact do you think it will have uh, down the road on this industry? Go ahead, Josh. Yeah, the financial impact of 453 is is interesting, but I think in order to understand that and kind of have a, 
a, a full understanding, you have to compare that to what impact 280E would have if you were to remove that. So financial, the financial impacts of 280E and being able to write off labor, which is probably your most expensive or at least one of your most expensive line items, and the ability to write off that labor is going to make a lot of these pot stocks immediately overnight look a lot more advantageous, a lot more profitable and look and have their bottom line, the profitability look a lot better. So right off the bat, just from a fundamental standpoint, it's going to have a huge impact. And yet that's probably minuscule by comparison to what, at least from my understanding, just I've never heard of it before, just hearing it now, but I can just know that a, a small little segment of, of 280E versus having complete tax deferral is a massive opportunity and we're all focusing on 280E and yet 453 seems like a crazy opportunity. I say hyperbolic stuff like 85% of all CBD companies will fail unless they have an entity in Puerto Rico utilizing Act 60, not paying federal income tax and saving 37% and having that margin, because we're talking about thin razor margins in agriculture. Cannabis is just you know one, one of those. So if someone's in Puerto Rico and they're competing against someone in California, how can you compete with somebody making 37% more than you? And the short answer is you don't, there is no competition to that. So every, every entity, every, um, you know, 453, 280E, you're, you're clinging on to the hope of, of increasing your margins. And these are just one of those tools in order to be able to do that and try to compete and pivot to stay relevant for one more day. Bud Tracker wins the T-shirt, by the way. I uh, just want to throw that out there. The chat room is starting to go back and forth a little bit, which is always fun. Um, I got to ask a question of all three of you guys. Uh, Nick, you said something off the top that I didn't jump on, but I'm, I'm going to go back to it now. You're actually confident that our federal government can institute a regulatory system to legalize the cannabis plant. And I want to know... Is the plant going to fall under the Department of Agriculture, Food and Drug Administration, or the DEA? Yes. Yes, all alcohol, three. Is that alcohol, what you're saying? ATF. ATF is the other one, right? Alcohol and tobacco and firearms, right? So we have all these entities in, in D.C., and you're confident that one of them, all of them, little bits and pieces of each one of them, I, I have not heard anybody in the industry that is confident about our federal government coming up with a plan that makes Are sense. you saying I said that? <laughs> yeah, you did. I, I heard you say it. I was like, well, we uh, confident so about this. federal. Well, let me say this. So we actually had, I, I think actually we, we, it's a, it's a little bit of an exciting time on that. We saw two, two Republican bills come out last year. Right. And, um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of talk around um, those two bills. And of course, Schumer bill, we're going to see a revised Schumer bill come out in the next couple of months. So that's very exciting as well. Um, so I think that it, it, you know, what, what, one of the things that I thought of earlier in our discussion around sort of the impact and wh where the states are and all that kind of stuff. The fact that we have these two Republican bills out there is a big deal because now, now both sides are showing their cards. Both sides are saying, hey, this is what's what we think will work. And the exciting thing about um, 
the state's reform bill, I think the the, the Nancy Grace bill is three percent tax uh, on the federal bill. Right. Um, that's a that's a low. That's a great rate for the industry. The industry should be rallying behind that. I think um, there's some problems with that bill, of course, but there's always problems with the bill. Um, and and a three percent tax in the in the federal the, a federal tax like that would would really help the industry get past you know one of its biggest problems, which is you know those folks who are not part of the industry, the traditional market. Um, and so uh, you know that that was a big disappointment when we saw some of those early leg led that early legislation from Schumer had. 15 to 25 percent tax that's that's not going to help anybody no. um boy <laughs> now michael we're really looking to defer some tax right Big but the, the, the point is that uh jimmy that um tax is the price of legalization but we cannot tax it so high that it prevents legalization from eliminating the problems that that legalization is supposed to overcome right and and um, you know that the but the reality of it is that there will be the tax. Regard if you're a cannabis company out there and you're thinking, man, I can't wait till 280E goes away because then we'll be able to make all this money. Think again. There's going to be another tax, um, and uh, it's not just going to go away a hundred percent, right? So um, you know it, that that's not a realistic um, you know planning objective. So let's get back to my alphabet soup question. Where do you think that will there be a separate cannabis regulatory board? What do we need that for, Jimmy? There's no I don't idea. I don't think we need it at all. You got enough free. You have so much red tape in D.C. They can't even decide who's going to handle hemp and how much CBD is going to be allowed to go into food and drug. I'll I mean, play a devil's advocate with that one, because the banking ahead. industry has an SRO. They're the ones that have a self-regulatory organization. So they implement all of the rules for themselves and then hand that over to government and make it way too complicated so that they don't want to sound stupid and you know, bruise their egos so they don't ask a lot of questions and then everything gets passed. Cannabis needs to do the same thing. We can't expect that, you know, the senators and, and these bureaucrats are going to do anything for us. We need an SRO. And I think like having the FDA try to absorb cannabis is, is a, a failure waiting to happen. Just look what happens in Washington state when we dissolve the liquor, or excuse me, the liquor um, control board and make it the liquor and cannabis board. They didn't want to deal with cannabis. We threw it at them and they hate us. <laughs> and it's it's evident in a lot of their policies and legislature. So having an SRO that's built from the ground up specifically for cannabis that can copy something similar to what the banking industry does, I think it would be a lot more advantageous for the industry than just allowing some of these alphabet soups to gain control and restrict and give it to big ag, big cannabis, and kind of let the small farmers just dwindle out. I'm, I was in banking. I saw what the, uh, the SBA did or didn't do rather. I never once saw one SBA loan go through in my entire banking career, not one. So look what the states are doing, dragging their feet with social equity. We can't allow the government to do for them, take the self-regulatory organization. And you I have spoken. Broke. You kind of that was very good. Uh, right at the end, though, you um, your wife I kind of chugged a little bit. So can you repeat the? I I, I get it. We all get that. Uh, Self regulatory would be, I would think, embraced by the industry. 
I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not. I, I Again, I am not confident at all with what's going on in Washington, D.C. If anybody watches this show, they know that I'm pretty outspoken about that. I think our two-party system is broken. I think that uh, we have too many senators hanging around for 50 years. Term limits have to be put in place because that Senate does not look like our country. The House of Representatives has a little bit better um, um, reflection of what's going on in our in our country right now, not the Senate. That being said, I want to get Nick and, and Michael involved with this discussion. A self-regulatory board, can that happen, guys? Uh, in theory, I mean, I look, I, my frame of reference is actually um, from the securities industry is FINRA. Um, and, you know, I'm going to get pilloried if any of my FINRA people see this, but FINRA is one of the most dysfunctional organizations that's out there. For anyone that doesn't know, FINRA is the financial and, and uh, regulatory authority that that um, self-polices uh, the, the, uh, the securities, quote unquote, industry. Basically, in, in lay terms, uh, you know, stockbrokers, brokerage houses, that kind of thing. And FINRA has, has basically, um, it's, it's sort of the tail wagging the dog. It, FINRA has taken such extraordinary steps. It's what we call form over substance in many cases that, you know, if you miss a day here on a deadline or you didn't cross this T or dot this I, you're out of business and or you're fined a, an arbitrary 25,000 or 100,000. And when you're talking about small firms, that's real money. You know, it's not real money to Goldman Sachs, but it's real money to your stockbroker down the street that's got a bunch of partners and and they're trying to keep their licensure up. Um, so for that reason, and for a number of other reasons, but we've seen a huge migration in the securities industry from the model of the broker dealer, um, meaning they make their money on transactions, okay, um, to the model of the registered investment advisor, which is governed by solely by the Securities and Exchange Commission. The FINRA is out of the, out of the loop can in, entirely. And there are just a lot of financial services professionals out there that are independent, not part of a big Wall Street you know, firm um, that have just said to heck with it, I'm done. And uh, they've exited and gone to a fee for service. They, they take an annual fee every year for managing your money. It becomes part of what you're, what, whether if, if you win, they win and you, your money goes down, they make a little less and, and so forth, rather than this transactional model that FINRA polices and it's you know it's been a disaster so I think if you do go with an SRO model um, it needs to be one that is is very that, that needs to take a lesson from where FINRA went went wrong uh, because that's a that's a very very uh, dysfunctional situation over there. Nick, you want to well, weigh in on that? So, Jimmy, there's so many regulations that govern state regulations that govern these cannabis mm -hmm. companies already. The federal government doesn't there. There will already be jurisdiction in various federal agencies, but they're here in the U.S., right? That these federal agencies have jurisdiction over them. The IRS isn't going away just because we legalize it or anything like that. Right. So um, it, it, it to me, it doesn't feel like we need more. Uh, regulation. What we need is the federal government to get out of the way and um, and let the states do it. They're already doing it uh, and and move forward. Yeah. To, to me, uh, a simple move off schedule one will have such an impact, positive impact 
on the industry alone that it's an administrative this is what Steve D'Angelo told me years ago. It's an administrative thing. And I think I actually saw some of the U.S. senators are asking if they can go directly to the DOJ to get them to, to deschedule it. I, I, I'm sure I saw that news item over the last two weeks. Have you guys seen that? I know that there's some buy-in by the AG on this, by, by Merrick Garland. Um, I, I've read some things that, that this is a favorable, this is a DOJ that's favorable to that, I believe. Yeah. And I, I just go one step further and say, in Washington, everything is about money. And to tie in with everything that we're going through in the wake of COVID um, and with, you know, a major international, I'm hesitant to use the word, the word World War III, but check in with me in a week or two. Uh, but everything that's going on in Europe right now, Ukraine, Russia, et cetera, potentially involving China, Taiwan, we don't know how far this is gonna spread. And, and, and also even within uh, Europe, how far, what Putin's got his eyes on next after Ukraine. The bottom line is that we are, uh, you, you saw at 1.30 in the morning, uh, $1.5 trillion uh, spending bill went through uh, the other night. At 1.30 in the morning, nobody has any idea what's in it at all, except there's some money in there for Ukraine, which is nice. But we are so deep in the hole financially that yeah. apropos of my comments earlier, as far as you know, the, 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 the inertia in, in DC to get something done with, as Nick said before, 3%, whatever, is still a heck of a lot of money when it comes to, you know, the demand for cannabis, our ability to grow it and, and, and everything else, that there's going to be some people scratching their heads in Washington, the smart people that are going to understand that you can backfill a lot of that deficit over time um, without gouging the, the cannabis consuming public by just legalizing and taking a few percentage points. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll tell you what's in that bill. So that so status quo, Jimmy, is what's in that bill. Um, no, no change. It's still uh, what what was formerly known as Rohrbacher Far is still limited to medical. Uh, there's no safe banking in there. Um, it's 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 status quo. I think. Um, Josh, is that what you're seeing in that status bill? Status well? chaos is what it is. Status chaos. At least that's the way I look at it, or stagnation, however you want to look at it. Um, Michael, you brought up what's going on in uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, our lead story on We Talk News is the detaining of the WNBA superstar and two-time Olympic gold medalist Brittany Griner in Russia for carrying hash oil to an, to an airport. She played professional basketball in Russia as well. This is a very difficult time to deal with Russia <laughs> like the U.S. is not going to be looking for a favor am I right how how ugly can this get uh just out and this is just an opinion guy not a legal uh not legal but um I think she's in big trouble myself I'll take a first stab at this and I'll be brief this has absolutely positively nothing to do with hash oil or anything else I promise you that the people over in Russia knew that she was a consumer of of hash oil long before she ever left for the airport or anything else. They did nothing about it. This was an opportunity to detain an American for, you know, for something that was, um, for something that was on the surface, illegal under Russian, Russian law, um, but they did it 
um, to prove a point and to flex their muscles for the United States and the rest of the world. It could have been anything else. They were just looking for a premise to, det to detain her. This is not a hash or a cannabis issue whatsoever. This is a Russia issue. And they, you know, again, the entire time she played over there in the off season, they could have come into her apartment and, you know, arrested her at any time because they know everything. Did they entrap her? Did they put it in you're, her you're, back? You're, you, I love you, Jimmy, but you're, you're attributing American jurisprudence over to Russia. So in Russia, they would say, entrapment, what is Jimmy talking about? We don't have <laughs> entrapment. We don't have entrapment over here, you know? So no, it's, it's, this is what we do here, right? Yeah, I mean, this is like uh, Cheerios in the morning, you know? <laughs> All right, one more question I got for you guys about MRBs. Okay, marijuana-related businesses. That is the technical term in the banking world for companies like mine that give the industry a voice and also take sponsorship dollars from the cannabis industry. We are an ancillary company. We don't touch the plant. We don't have any links on our site that go to any dispensaries. Uh, and we are still an MRB, according to the banks. Uh, is that going to, are they going to ease up on that? I'm starting to see and hear about some banks that have like tier one that are plant touching MRBs and tier two, like a media company, like a container company, like a paper company that is working with the industry uh, and taking money from it. But, and, but it is not a plant touching one. Are we going, is this? where we're at right now and can we change that jimmy uh, uh mrbs as you call them need to be concerned about one thing form 8300 okay form 8300 jimmy if you're if you're a, if you're a, a a you know providing services to a cannabis company they're paying you cash i know we all go we don't take cash at some point you will if you're in this industry and you need to know about form 8300 um, which is the form that you file when you get more than 10,000 cash from someone. Um, and so that's really, really important for MRBs. The IRS audits those, those uh, MRBs and makes sure that they're filing their forms 8,300, um, cool. which, which of course is, is a bank's concern as well. Bank Secrecy Act is what's behind the banks not wanting to have cannabis companies because of the reports that they have to file when you bring in the cash into the bank, right? Um, I don't see any change in this until there's change in banking. And it, it all comes down to the individual banks and their comfort level. And that all comes down to, to their clients and how their clients are, are, are interacting with their banks. And so I've seen cases where cannabis companies have lost their bank accounts for silly things, but it's really because there's a history of silly things and the banks get to the point where they're like, look, we're done. Go, go away. Yeah. Interesting. Um, we're, we're almost up against it. Uh, Josh, I'd like to throw it back to you. Do you want to ask these two fine attorneys uh, any questions or opinions before we say goodbye? Yeah, curious if you guys think if uh, any of the banks or credit unions are, are at risk of losing their charter at this point. You have one in Colorado that's going public, a credit union, um, and it seems kind of mainstream at this point. So if they're willing to go public and disclose all these records, it, it's signaling to me that money talks and, and we're here for the long run. So are these just kind of demonstrating uh, to the feds that it's, it's a, a business that should be implemented and that people shouldn't, that banks shouldn't worry about losing their charter? Nick, I'll throw it back to you. 
Nick? Okay. <laughs> Nick? Uh, yeah, no, don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> um, I think that, uh, I think that I have seen some things from some banks that I thought was interesting. There's some, in order for a bank to be a real big cannabis player, there's some problems around the averages that banks have to have. They can't be overly, uh, have be overly invested in one class of depositors, too much risk there. So they have to have a diversified depositor pool and that gets them into trouble if they're the cannabis bank. Um, and there's some, there's some interesting workarounds in that, that, that banks deploy that are, that I, that you look and you think, well, if that was a cannabis company, they'd never get away with that. So maybe money does talk, maybe money does talk. Um, I, 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 I hope that bank succeeds. I, I, I think it's good for the cannabis industry if they do. Um, and it's good for banking if they do as well. The banking thing is silly. Uh, it needs to be solved. Um, and, um, it's just and and your representative ed perlmutter has said he's going to be a pest about getting it like he hasn't been a pest over the last what 10 years of being in office but uh, that that's his charge uh, michael and michael berwick and nick richards from green spoon martyr um look i learned i always learn when i talk to really smart people like you guys okay and i really appreciate you taking the time out to explain this new tax strategy that you've discovered. And if people want to ask you questions, let's give Michael's email out. Michael, how do people find you? <laughs> oh, very simply. Um, you, can, you can email me at Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, dot or period, whatever you prefer, uh, Berwick, B-U-R-W-I-C-K, at G-M, as in General Motors or Green Spoon Martyr, whatever you prefer, law, L-A-W dot com. And I would say that you can do the same thing with my partner and colleague and friend, uh, Nick Richards, except it's Nick dot Richards at gmlaw.com. Uh, you don't have so, to spell it out. I think we got I'm Nick not, Richards on there. Yeah, Nick's got an easier. I mean, Michael Burr's not that difficult. Write that down. <laughs> I'm going to give you the Cyrillic spelling for all of our Ukrainian and, uh, you know, Eastern European. Uh... Wait, I'm getting ready again. Here we go. Oh, here we go. There he goes. This is the, this is the big finish. All right. You know, Jimmy, so this, this is a, uh, a microfiber uh, moisture cloth. Uh, Green Spoon Martyr uh, uh, logo. We used to call these do-rags back when right. I was a kid. But I don't think you I still do. You call, you still call that a do-rag, yeah? I, I guess I'm... I guess I haven't had my formal initiation yet because I don't have one of those and I'd like to get How one. How about I've the pink the sunglasses? Do you have those, Michael? I don't have those either. I, I, <laughs> my daughter has one. I borrow them from time to time. So. All right, guys. Thank you so much. We've got, a, we've got three CEOs who are on hold that are going to join us over the next hour and we'll meet them after this break. Don't go away. Green Rush Live continues after this. Hey. You want to grow your own plants? Check out Style Lighting's Grow Kit. It has everything you need to become an expert home grower and bring the power of the sun indoors. Style Lighting uses TCP's high-powered commercial LEDs that deliver twice the output in the market. The Grow Kit has a grow bag, a timer, chains to hang the light, and of course the best in the business lighting system by TCP. Check out stylelighting.shop for more information.
Hi, my name is Kai Chang. I'm the president and founder of Aloha Green Apothecary in Hawaii. We're a vertically integrated medical cannabis company with three dispensaries, uh, one extraction lab, and one cultivation center near the North Shore of Oahu. We have over 150 employees now, and we've been working with Adaptive HR to meet our, meet our human resource needs. We're super excited to work with them as we expand, and we've grown uh, at least two, three times over the last two years. So we look forward to a good relationship with Adaptive, and uh, come visit us in Hawaii anytime. Aloha. Hi, my name is Janice O'Reilly. I'm a partner with AAF CPAs, a national CPA firm that specializes in cannabis. We're based out of Boston. We have been working with Adaptive HR for several years and have recommended them to our clients who have all been extremely happy with their service and their responsiveness. Calling all growers with Liz Grow is supported by the Grow Kit from StyleLighting.shop. Adaptive HR, built for your cannabis business. Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first. By Accounting Buds, your accountant in cannabis. And by Salient Video Surveillance Systems for today and tomorrow's security. You would think that it is. However, there's quite a bit of debate right now in the accounting industry when it relates to cannabis with this exact question. Um, I'm part of a few different networking groups that are solely accountants for cannabis companies. And there's been quite a bit of back and forth in those communities and discussion regarding whether 280E, if it went away, if the administration legalized cannabis or took it off of schedule one what would happen and it could go either way right now the debate is it can make the accountant's life much easier uh, that's what a lot of the inexperienced accountants are saying right now it seems whereas the accountants that have been in this industry for a while and have, and have gone through the same thing that happened with hemp a few years ago are saying that it'll actually will make lives more difficult because when hemp became declassified a while back, the accounting became more complicated. All right, welcome back to the Friday afternoon Green Rush Live. I'm Jimmy Young from Pro Cannabis Media, joined this week by my guest host, Josh Kincaid from Seattle, Washington. Josh, say hello. Hello. Good job, Josh. He does a show called The Talking Hedge. Hey, give yourself a little plug. How often do you do that? Where can people find it? Go ahead. The Talking Hedge is on your favorite cannabis, uh, on all your podcasts. So five days a week, Monday through Friday, a lot of episodes. We're everywhere. You do a show every day. Yeah, I mean, between 10 minutes and, and an hour. Wow. I mean, I thought I was nuts doing three shows a week, but uh, that's a completely different entity. But uh, I, I admire your work ethic, and uh, you've been a very nice uh, guest host so far. So let's keep it going. Let's meet our next two guests. They're both CEOs. You know, 
Now, I'm not going to compare the CEO to the other CEO, but I'm going to start with Kim Rayal from Azuka. Uh, tell us about Azuka, and I understand you're an edible company in New Mexico, and that's all I know. So tell me a little bit about you. Sure. Um, I'm a co-founder and CEO of Azuka, uh, partnered with uh, my co-founder, Ron Silver, who's a chef in New York City. So we are sort of New Mexico and New York based, and we are... Uh, an advanced formulations company for edibles. So what we do is we create formulations that make ingestible cannabis fast acting, great tasting, and very easy to manufacture in ingestible form. And then we license our formulations and um, provide a proprietary non-infused precursor to edibles companies to make their edibles fast, act fast acting, great tasting, and very easy to make. Cool, very good. And speaking of chefs, we've got one. We've got Chef Nikki right here. Uh, Nick, tell us a little bit about what you're up to, what you do. So my name is Chef Nikki. Um, I am from the Herbal Creative Kitchen, a.k.a. Kitchen. I spell it K-I-T-H-C-E-N, completely intentional. Um, I get it. I get it. That's that <laughs> T-H-C thing. Yeah, I got yeah, ESPN, man. Good stuff. All right. <laughs> Excellent. So, yeah, so I'm specializing in doing... Uh, lots of infusions. So on the spot infusions, if somebody wants to learn how to infuse their own products for dispensaries or people creating products to kind of showcase their products to bud tenders. So say just how Azuka, say they have some terpene profiles they want to showcase and um, with their bud tenders at a certain location. So that's where I will come in and use that. So they'll just gain a little bit more knowledge about that, be able to taste other things, be able to complement it, and overall just be able to sell the product a little bit more, and as well just doing private events and um, you know educational events, just everything, getting involved with people, getting educated about the plant and how it's infused with food, especially and in beverages, and how everybody can learn with that. Very cool, and of course, private parties, right, Chef Nikki? Yes, of course. So private parties is a big thing, um, especially with big brands, you know, just doing a lot of grand opening kind of stuff. Like I do have almost a basic food truck set up with a pizza oven smoker to do a uh, whole product launches or barbecues outside of your location and all like showcasing terpene profiles, you know, just in case we're naming our pizza, maybe a margarita pizza, say so to speak, or just, you know, going along with the themes without necessarily being completely infused all the time. But then there is the private party um, aspect about it as well, depending on the liabilities, of course. Kim, I, I want to ask you the next question about interstate commerce. We all know that it's not allowed technically, right? Legally, if you will. However, in the edible space, you guys have recipes, basically. Am I right? And you have a, a license that's a intellectual property that you can share with other states where they can make that same recipe in that state, correct? Correct. So our formulations are now in, I think, about 14, growing to probably 20-some states by the end of this year. We're in Canada. We're expanding in Europe. Uh, we have products in Asia and South America. So um, because of the flexibility of our formulations, we can actually ship anywhere in the world because we don't ship any 
active ingredient. So we put the precursors in our partner's hands and they activate it and are off to the races. So we kind cool. of have this magic um, business model and formulation kit that lets us sort of leapfrog over this interstate commerce limitation. Yeah, and I, again, Josh, I'm gonna bring you in because I wanna get your opinion about this. You know, we all know, we, in fact, we had a trivia question about the three counties in, in the Emerald Triangle to give away a t-shirt earlier. Uh, 80% of the legacy market comes out of that Emerald Triangle inside the United States, the illegal market, if you will. That's flour going across state lines that is not detected. And yet there's a legal entity here who shares a intellectual property, a recipe for an edible. She's all over the country. Is this fair? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's fair. It's how normal business should be conducted. Uh, you know, if you're trying to become essentially a multi-state operator, if you look at any other regular business model, whether it's Pepsi or uh, Coca-Cola, they have regional facilities. So you have maybe a spot in, you know, New Mexico where everything is, is uh, made, all your secret ingredients, everything that's proprietary or your, your secret intellectual property and then distributed to your regions from there. And then your partners have the, the water and the, the general components that they add to it. So it makes sense to me. I just want to know why infused coffee isn't a thing. I mean, I'm in Seattle and infused coffee. It, I mean, K-Cups is, it, that's not real coffee in my opinion. I, I want, I'm waiting for, that's kind of my uh, my indicator of normalization is like when you have coffee and it's everywhere, then I think maybe that the beverage category can, you can start getting excited about it uh, until then it's, it's regional. Uh, and I think maybe, maybe coffee is kind of that, that bellwether indicator of, of beverage normalization. Uh, so hopefully infused coffee will be a thing. I'm ready for it. Uh, I, I'm guessing that the, uh, the other two guests on our show are, are all for infusing all these kinds of products, all these cannabinoids and terpenes into as many different food items as they possibly can, especially at private events, Chef Nikki, right? Of course. Oh, let me ask you a question. And I, I know this, I know what the answer is, but I want you to explain it to people. We all know, and we, we talk about responsible use of cannabis. We all hear the mantra to start low and go slow, especially when you're dealing with an edible product. Because for the most part, people who have had edible experiences, there's always one bad experience that is a funny story to tell. But while you're inside that uncomfortable reaction, it is not pleasant at all. How do you as a chef at a private party screen the people you're feeding? So specifically for that, there is a few steps. So first of all, we are making sure that everybody knows what they're consuming and is knowledgeable about it. Say if it is a private party and there is alcohol there to be knowledgeable about that as well. Um, so we obviously don't recommend that, but um, obviously for, but for the dosing standpoint, uh, just as it is, my specialty is doing multi-course dinners. So every single course maybe your beverage or your food course, whether it's a small bite or it's a full entree will be kind of dosed accordingly. So it'll be maybe your first course, you'll get one milligram, two milligrams, depending on what you actually state in the beginning of the, the meal. So in the beginning of the meal, I'm going around to the table, 
taking dosage preferences from each guest, making sure if they want, um, making sure if they want actual dosage in their meal whatsoever, if they just want CBD, low dosage, medium or high. So that way that they can kind of gauge with that. And then everything is slower. And at any point, because it is a multi-course between four to eight to 10 courses, you at any time could gain a little bit more or actually take away a little bit more. So that way you'll feel comfortable in the event. And a big thing that I also do is how we just talked about is different infusions. So every single thing in each course is also a different infusion. As you know, every type of infusion affects the body a little bit differently. So our fat will probably take a little longer for our body to metabolize, while a sugar might take a little bit longer as well. But then when we go to glucose and sucrose, and that's probably what azucas use, or I'm not saying anything like that, but just something that the body metabolizes a little bit easier. So that's why we'll get a little bit more fast acting without using actual alcohol in there. And then, um, cause alcohol would obviously secrete in the system a little bit quicker than anything else. But, uh, so alcohol different types of sugars and different types of fats. So it's all this whole science behind it of how, the, how all these cannabinoids are going to affect you at a certain time throughout the experience. Yeah. And that, that's great. And that's a responsible approach to your culinary wisdom, chef Nikki. Okay. Yeah. And thank you. you know, and you're responsible for people, then the reactions and you, the worst thing that can happen is you get a newcomer who's never had any, any experience at all and gets too much, gets one of those uncomfortable experiences and never wants to do it again. Right. We all want, right. Am I right? Yeah. Nano, nano emulsification should, should fix that though. If there's a faster onset, then you don't have to wait an hour to say, Hey, should I say, take this second cookie? And so with nano emulsification and the faster uptake and the quicker high uh, should, in theory, uh, um, avoid that, which is almost unfortunate that the newcomers coming up don't have that that story to tell about how they OD'd on, on edibles. But, you know, uh, that's also a good thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Kim, say, go ahead. I mean, the, also, the you know, these are great opportunities to educate, um, especially newcomers to edible or ingestible cannabis about the different ways that the body actually um, uh, can metabolize ingestible cannabis. So traditional edibles uh, that are not, you know, using a formulation like ours, they are metabolized by the liver, what's called first pass metabolism. And what that does is it breaks the, the distillate, usually the delta 9-THC down into something called 11 hydroxy THC happens in your liver. And that's why traditional edibles take so long, right? It just takes a long time for your body to do that work. Um, and it also, the 11 hydroxy THC is what produces more of the traditional edibles effect of the couch lock, more sedative effect. Um, and and it, but there's other ways you can enjoy ingestible cannabis. For example, uh, our formulations, because they're absorbed in the so soft tissue, they're a hydrophilic water seeking encapsulation of the THC molecule. Uh, when they're ingested, they're absorbed quickly and they actually uh, remain Delta 9 THC. So the consumer can experience more of a smoker's effect, like, it, you know, more of a euphoric effect cool. from the THC instead of the 11 hydroxy THC of traditional edibles. So there's a great opportunity to, um, to educate consumers about this array of ways to experience cannabis. And I think that's the real key to avoiding those bad experiences that you're talking about that so many people have had with uh, edible or ingestible cannabis. 
It was it was certainly bad advice from the first bud tender with my medical card I ever got. And it was an <laughs> uncomfortable uh, 33 milligram experience, let's just say. <laughs> it was, it, but as my life philosophy and anybody who knows me, any of my friends out there know, as long as you live to tell the story, it's okay, you know? Uh, at least that's how I feel. Uh, how important is quality control, uh, Kim? And what kind, of, what kind of things do you have in place as a business to make sure that the product that comes out with your brand and your labeling in New Mexico is the same product that might be in Michigan or California or even Massachusetts? Sure. I mean, so we have standard, you know, food safety protocols for all of the stuff that we do in, in terms of our pre-infused ingredients. And then for anything uh, that is the infused ingredient, so when you add the active cannabinoid THC or CBD or any other cannabinoid, um, we have a protocol of everything is tested three times before it goes to the consumer, right? The, the extract distillate is tested once. It's typically tested a second time by a different lab. Then it goes into a finished product. Sometimes there's an intermediary product that is tested a third time and then finished product tested a fourth, fourth time for potency, um, heavy metals, uh, contaminants, uh, et cetera. So uh, we really believe in at least three steps along the quality control process of, of testing for all the things that the consumer cares about. So potency and cannabinoids. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Josh, I'm going to ask you, do you I, I'm going to ask you to ask a question. I'm going to give you a little time to think about it. And then I'm going to throw it to you. Go ahead, Josh. Is it, oh, is it, a question about um, if you guys think about cannabis cafes, and you know, we mentioned earlier here on the podcast about how it's class C felony in Washington state, but I kind of view it as the window into the soul of the community. So as soon as we can find, you know, where you don't have to have private events, where you can have these, uh, these um, these events where people can dine together and you can see that and you, you can normalize it and it's not taboo anymore where it's a windowless establishment and there's nefarious things going on inside where you're eating food with plants and herbs you know it's it needs to just kind of be legalized and normalized um, do you guys feel that cannabis cafes are that next step forward hundred percent. Oh, go ahead, Kim. So yep. social, social consumption is, is going to happen. It's already written into statute in nine states. Um, and different states have approached it a little bit differently. But uh, what's going to be key to social consumption normalization is having products. And I see it sort of falling out into two different. There's There'll be kind of smoking lounges that are akin to cigar lounges. And then there'll be non, non-smoking, which I think will be... Uh, they'll have many different manifestations, right? Some of them will look more like an Erewhon, like a, you know, functional beverage type offering. Some will be like a, you know, a coffee shop. Some will look like a high-end wine bar or cocktail lounge, depending on the proprietor. But the key is to having the cannabinoids in each of those settings delivered in a way that the consumer knows exactly what they're getting. They understand what a dose of social, socially consumed cannabis is. They understand the effect it's going to have on them if they're a two milligram dose or a five or a 10 milligram dose. And that the proprietaries of the pro, proprietors of those establishments really source their, um, their cannabis ingredients in a way that allows them to deliver those predictable predictable effects. So it's a, it's a space that we're actually doing a lot of work in because our formulations are really perfectly designed to enable all of those entrepreneurs and social consumption to deliver that great customer experience. 
So executive oh. chef Nikki, are you going to be an executive chef of a social consumption lounge? Is that the yeah, end? And I, and I love what Azuka is saying right now. So that's that's awesome. That's exactly what I'm trying to do basically with, with the brand is create all those you know, type of regulations for that social consumption as well, because it will be, and that's how I formulate the dinners as well when people are dosing. So it's either using correct dosage, using droppers or weighing actual the oil or butter that I'm formulating perfectly. So everybody is getting the correct dosage that they're expecting. So that's like a huge thing. And that's great that you have it already <laughs> formulated and everything and ready to go. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Josh a question. Uh, you do a show every day with the Talking Edge, okay? How much science do you have in your background to ask good questions? Because there's so much science now attached to cannabis. Zero. Um, <laughs> I, I you know I took a D waiver. Honestly, it, it was the only D I got in college. So it's I took astronomy for my science uh, at Tufts. Okay. And yeah. that enough because I did not want my extent of science is when I um, dismembered the frog in 10th grade for biology. That was pretty much it. I was like, OK, I'm done with science. I don't want to know. I don't care what happens after that. But just through osmosis, I listened to Kim talking about it. it there's a ton of science that mm -hmm. goes into making these products, isn't there, Kim? You know, absolutely. But what I think is important is, and what I love about what we do is demystifying the cannabis plant for my mom, right? This right. is a wonderful medicinal healing plant. It's been scary, you know, pretty much all my lifetime. And um, I think that it's time to use science to actually get to the, what I call the simplicity on the other side of complexity. So that it's, you know, you talked about infused coffee. My actual, my first cannabis edibles experience was Ron's formulations before the company was launched and it was infused into coffee. And I'm like, wow, this is an amazing product. Yeah, so cool. it's really using science to make it really simple and approachable. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm amazed at what, it's what goes on with this plant since 1971. Um, which is when I started uh, using cannabis as a 14-year-old ADHD guy that had no clue what ADHD was and really didn't have much of a clue about weed either. But I knew that I was getting sick on three beers and I was getting crap from my friends for not being able to hold my beer. And by the way, growing up, the drinking age was 18. And this is an adult use plus 21 product. Josh, what's your feeling about the plus 21 for adults and are we are we or should we go back to 18 and and put everything at 18 and really stress education before they even get to 21 Josh? i think it's interesting when you look at something like amsterdam you go there and the locals don't really dive into it because it's not this this thing where i think with kids they're like rubber bands and if you pull them hard enough they're just going to spring forward and go and check it out so you know, when I was in high school and we would go and binge drink every Friday and Saturday night, it was it was because we didn't have anything else to do and you weren't supposed to. And so we were going to naturally rebel against that. But cannabis for me was a thing where it was like everyone must have been smoking indica because I always attributed it to lazy stoner stereotype. It wasn't this euphoric, energetic, uplifting experience like coffee and cannabis that we have now. You know, we I didn't know the difference between that. And so 
I'm kind of hesitant because I don't, I don't necessarily think someone at 18 should um, self-medicate, but I think it's way better than using opioids and anything else. I think as recreation goes, that maybe should just stay at 21 because I think 18 year olds are uh, not fully developed or, you know, emotionally or intellectually mature enough uh, to go out and, and do recreational um, products like, like cannabis. Not that it's going to hurt them, but mentally they're still evolving and maturing and growing. I actually think the 20 somethings that I have on my staff are more mature than I am. Okay. And I'm 64. <laughs> okay. So I just want to say that. Um, <laughs> Kid, what's your feeling about 1821, uh, educating kids, you know, and I, it sounds like you came up through the dare era. Am I right? Oh Yeah. Nancy Reagan, just say no mom right here. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think uh, first and foremost, we need a lot more science, a lot more um, studies on the effect of cannabis on the adolescent and growing brain. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a medical professional, but the studies that I have seen, uh, would instruct that it's contraindicated while the brain is still developing. So much like, you know, alcohol is a poison, right? It, that you don't really actually want to encourage the 18 to 24 year olds or younger to be using cannabis. So that's my concern is that we um, have good science and good education on the effect of, of this and any other um, material on the, these lovely developing human brains. Yeah. Well, you can, now it explains kind of why I'm as crazy as I am. Uh, Chef Nikki, what's your feeling about uh, 1821? Is, is it a magic time or is it to me, it's, it's really the ability to understand how it affects the human body? I feel like it's definitely an exploratory time. Like it's definitely a time where somebody would be more interested in trying it, you know, so it could be open to that. But just how she was saying just more about the education about it. And I feel like if these kids or everybody is educated around that time, they can choose to consume. And 18 doesn't really seem, I don't, you know, I don't really want to say this on the air, but I've smoked <laughs> as, a, as a young child. So I know I've been doing it since at like middle school, high school. So it's just kind of like a thing that has been going on and I know it affects everybody a little bit differently but right. just you know the science is about it it's good to know about how it affects the brain differently just how alcohol obviously it's not we're not promoting children or promoting younger people to be drinking alcohol at a younger age because we know the effects of it so it's just that kind of the same exact way as long as everybody is responsible with it and knows what they're getting into I feel like that way we can get, come to a conclusion. All right. So obviously I haven't other, I, I literally checked into my dorm room on my 18th birthday when the drinking age was 18. Okay. I've always felt I was blessed because when it turned to 21, I was 21. That being said, I know I never enjoyed alcohol. A lot of people can drink you under the table, you know, hollow leg. I mean, we, this is part of our culture here in the United States where alcoholism is an issue. Europe does not have an alcohol problem. They do not have alcohols, alcoholics as much as we do in the United States of America. Why? Because the parents educated them at a young age and they, they managed to, uh, to show them the responsible use of alcohol. Why can't that happen with cannabis? Josh, what's your feeling about that? 
I think it's a cultural thing. We really like to throw stigmas. If you go to you know Eastern Europe, you go to Russia, they don't even know. They don't even have. I'm a not term going to Russia anytime soon. I'm going to tell you that right now. Go ahead. I'm just I'm just saying like they don't have a term for alcoholism. So they would look at us and say, why do you even have a term for that? Um, we obviously there's there's issues and people have issues. But um, I just think that we we love to stereotype and stigmatize a lot of things and, and play you know, doctor, it's a pastime in the U.S. Gotcha. Uh, Kim, you have your feeling about what I, the rant I just had. <laughs> and if you don't feel like answer, you'd say you don't have to. <laughs> Bless you, Nick. Thanks. You know, um, <laughs> sorry, I got off on the Russia tangent and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to Russia. Either. <laughs> uh, 1821. Is it uh, the magical, is it the magical number? And age, you know. Again, I I, I would go back to the the science and the the still lack of science around the effect of the compounds on the developing brain. And I I really want to know more about that. I certainly um, you know don't encourage my adolescent to use cannabis. Um, I know my young adult children use cannabis and they're, you know, in their mid twenties. So I think it's a different, different story, but I, I would like to have more science as a parent yep. before I, uh, you know, said it's okay for, to, to teach a, you know, well, 18 year old or 16 year old about responsible use of cannabis at that age. I just don't think we, I don't think we know enough. I'm not, you know, I don't have no Pollyanna, like the kids aren't doing it. I, right. But I think, again, I think we need to push for more science on this, on this question. Yeah. All right. Um, Chef Nikki and, and Kim, can you guys um, stick around or do you have to, another important engagement to go to? Because you're good. Kim, can you hang out? Uh, give me a sec. Because oh, she's a CEO of a major corporation. So I'm <laughs> guessing she has a very tight schedule and she was so <laughs> nice to come on on short notice yeah. today. Yeah. What's that? I'm good for a bit. Yes. Awesome. And by the way, if you have to bail, just bail. Okay, no worries. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break and we're going to bring in Dr. David Kunick next. Uh, he's a, uh, a, I could call him a friend and somewhat of a regular on Green Rush Live and in Pro Cannabis and on Pro Cannabis Media. We'll be back after this break. Don't go away. Hey. You want to grow your own plants? Check out Style Lighting's Grow Kit. It has everything you need to become an expert home grower and bring the power of the sun indoors. Style Lighting uses TCP's high-powered commercial LEDs that deliver twice the output in the market. The Grow Kit has a grow bag, a timer, chains to hang the light, and of course the best in the business lighting system by TCP. Check out stylelighting.shop for more information. Hi, my name's Tai Chang. I'm the president and founder of Aloha Green Apothecary in Hawaii. We're a vertically integrated medical cannabis company with three dispensaries, uh, one extraction lab, and one cultivation center near the North Shore of Oahu. We have over 150 employees now, and we've been working with Adaptive HR to meet our, meet our human resource needs. We're super excited to work with them as we expand, and we've grown uh, at least two, three times over the last two years. So we look forward to a good relationship with Adaptive, and uh, come visit us in Hawaii anytime. Aloha.
name is Janice O'Reilly. I'm a partner with AAF CPAs, a national CPA firm that specializes in cannabis. We're based out of Boston. We have been working with Adaptive HR for several years and have recommended them to our clients, who have all been extremely happy with their service and their responsiveness. Calling All Growers with Liz Grow is supported by The Grow Kit from StyleLighting.shop, Adaptive HR, built for your cannabis business, Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first, by Accounting Buds, your accountant in cannabis, and by Salient Video Surveillance Systems for today and tomorrow's security. You would think that it is. However, there's quite a bit of debate right now in the accounting industry when it relates to cannabis with this exact question. Um, I'm part of a few different networking groups that are solely accountants for cannabis companies. And there's been quite a bit of back and forth in those communities and discussion regarding whether 280E, if it went away, if the administration legalized cannabis or took it off of schedule one what would happen and it could go either way right now the debate is it can make the accountant's life much easier uh, that's what a lot of the inexperienced accountants are saying right now it seems whereas the accountants that have been in this industry for a while and have, and have gone through the same thing that happened with hemp a few years ago are saying that it'll actually will make lives more difficult because when hemp became declassified a while back, the accounting became more complicated. All right, welcome back to the final half hour of another Friday afternoon edition of Green Rush Live. I'm Jimmy Young from Pro Cannabis Media. I'm joined by Josh Kincaid, who's a regular contributor to our weekly news show that is live streamed right after this live program at six o'clock ish. And uh, Josh is our Washington state correspondent. We have about 10 other state correspondents now, including one from Europe. And uh, I'm really proud of the fact that people like Josh are willing to give whatever law, however long it takes you, Josh, to put your report together every week. Uh, I know some it takes hours and others it doesn't take more than 90 seconds. Um, so I appreciate the effort that you put in and you've been an added addition to our coast to coast effort here on Pro Cannabis Media. So I'm on record of saying thank you. Yeah, happy to be on, man. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. And we welcome in a guy who's been on with us in the past, uh, someone I have a lot of respect for and enjoy his company, both uh, socially and taking one of his seminars, which I took at the New England Cannabis Convention uh, this past fall, got me out of bed on a Saturday at about 8 a.m. And I got into Boston in time to make it to the seminar. And I still say that was a it was an invigorating experience. David Kunick from UCS Advisors. David, great to see you again. Uh, thanks for having me today, Jimmy. Appreciate it. And so it was great to be on. And yes, uh, the seminar you were there and uh, the fact that you stood the, that you uh, stayed the entire time means we're doing something right. 
Yeah, no, I, I thought it was I thought it was entertaining. You kept it moving. Uh, it was a dog and pony show with you and Chris. I'll be perfectly honest, but you have to be somewhat of an entertainer when you have a, a, a live audience, if you will, of people in front of you. Right. Exactly. Well said. All right. So uh, you are a doctor of physical therapy, if I remember correctly. Correct. Right. Yep. And, uh, and a doctor of also healthcare management as well, too. Um, I have a prescription in my pocket. I just want you to know I'm going to find a physical therapist now to take care of this uh, aging body of mine. But we don't want to get into that. I want to continue to talk about uh, cannabis. We have Kim Real from Azuka and Chef Nikki Escoto. I got it right. I got it right uh, with us as well. But uh, David, I want to I want to get your impressions about where we are at now with the uh, end of prohibition movement that continues to evolve here in the United States. Are you, and you're in New Jersey, if I remember correctly, right? I, I have uh, offices in New Jersey and also Portland, Maine. And I used to have one in Las Vegas as well, too. That's right. And I, and I had canvas companies in Oregon, Colorado, Nevada, Michigan, um, and also Maine. All right. So the question I'm going to ask you right off the bat, New York is now moving towards uh, adult use market, you know, there's ridiculous amounts of predictions for uh, the New York market, perhaps equaling the California market in five years. Has the New York law that, that they voted in and are starting to do regulations, did they get it right in that state? So, so ironically, far? ironically, I was in New York City last night and there was more cannabis shops popping up and more People walking through saying, hey, I have the best weed here. Buy my weed. You want a joint? You want this? You want that? And ironically, the, the people that parked the car behind me bought some cannabis and started rolling right in their car. And I started laughing. And they're like, what's so funny? And I'm like, because how long did it take for this to happen? Um, but to answer your question directly, um, it's really too soon to tell. And yeah. I know that sounds like a very political answer. Yeah. But if we look at New York, New Jersey, it's such a conundrum and how they're still trying to actually figure out the rules and regulations. And the one state I like to use a lot is Michigan, because Michigan had the most amount of medical patients. So they had a good system in place. So when it went recreational, they had a lot of the rules and regulations in place. New York State doesn't have that much of, a have a bunch of medical patients, nor did New Jersey, really. So you're still figuring out the rules and regulations. And you're still figuring out, you know, how to keep the rec program separate from the medical program. Um, I've gone on numerous shows and Jimmy, you've heard me say this before. I personally think all 50 states should get medical cannabis. Then we can worry about the recreational, but mm -hmm. the, when going back and forth, that's where you have a big mix uh, on how to use this medicine, how to implement it and really figure out the rules and regs. So, um, you know, it's gonna be very, very interesting overall to see how this rolls out. I think we're gonna have numerous delays in New York, just like in New Jersey or like any other state. So Kim, you're in New Mexico. Can you walk me through, you know, how it evolved there? I, I know somewhat what happened there. Was it legislature or a ballot question? So it was it was legislative. So New Mexico uh, passed a uh, medical program in 2008, a Compassionate Care Act, and has had a pretty robust medical program in place since then. And then last year uh, in 2021, the legislature passed adult use in a special session called by uh, our governor. And adult use comes online April 1st. So uh, New Mexico had a, a fairly robust medical system in place and then a very aggressive uh, regulation writing um, process for adult use to be able to come online so quickly. 
so adult use will, will come online in New Mexico April 1st. Uh, there is a scramble, but um, I think the state is as ready as any state that makes that transition is. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be great. And, you know, in New York, I, you know, I'll add to your comments on the New York legislation because we have, you know, we kind of, we're kind of New York and New Mexico based. And it was interesting to me that those are our two operating headquarters. And New York and New Mexico adopted adult use a day away from each other last uh, first quarter of last year, which is, I always personally took credit for that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think the one thing that I would say about the New York uh, legislation that I think they really did get right was the emphasis on social equity and social justice. And in particular, what I like about the New York statute, the rules, the regs aren't all written read yet, obviously, but the way they are forcing a flat industry in New York adult use, meaning like for their social consumption, um, uh, their social consumption statute requires that one, uh, one licensee can have no more than three licenses. So meaning you're not gonna have like a Starbucks of social consumption in New York, right? You're gonna have smaller entrepreneurs. It's gonna, I think it's gonna really unleash a lot of creativity at the you know, social consumption level. So I think a lot of the ways they wrote that, that legislation to, to flatten the industry and give smaller entrepreneurs an opportunity to get into this space. I think you probably all saw the, the announcement that came out last night on New York about the, the preference for um, licensees who have a, a past criminal conviction. Like right. that, that, this is some pretty like, you know, groundbreaking uh, um, news for the industry. So lots of, lots of interesting stuff going it, on. It, in it is, Kim. And I just want to add, though, and maybe I'm a little jaded being in this industry for over a decade. Yeah. Um, on paper, I agree. But I've seen too many other states and too many other companies find, figure out workarounds and people trying to hustle the system. So yeah. in theory, Kim, you're spot on. And maybe I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer here, but let's see really how it's implemented and really what happens. Because the other thing is too, like, let's look at Connecticut. Connecticut, um, I believe uh, for their social equity, it's $3 million for the license. <laughs> the largest ever in the US for, for, for a social equity license. Like that's, that, that, that's mind blowing. Right. You know, so that, that's where I think it's gonna be kind of interesting to see what happens overall. But you, but you make some great points, Kim. Yeah. Uh, let me ask him one more question about uh, New Mexico. Are they did they automatically give adult use licenses to the medical dispensaries like Arizona did to open the market, or are they getting separate applications and trying to separate the two entities? There will be both. There will be both. So okay. you know the um, I mean I think similar. I think Massachusetts did something similar, where like legacy uh, medical providers could also have adult use, but um, there was a requirement where there was a percentage of inventory that had to be reserved for people with a medical card to ensure right. that patients had access to medicine. And right. I think some of those things are really important. Yeah, and totally. And, and people do forget that this really is a, a medicinal product. It, it interacts with your endocannabinoid system that's inside every mammal. And, and, and it affects everybody differently. I think some, I don't know if it was, uh, one of you guys, we talked about sativa versus indica. That's now being debunked, right? Because it isn't about sativa or indica as much as it is about the terpenes that that steer the mm -hmm. cannabinoids. Uh, am I accurate there, David? You're going, yeah. It's a, yeah. it's 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 a, it's a fair it's a fair assumption to say. Yeah, Chef Nikki, you find that out too? 
Yeah, for sure. Definitely different profiles have different effects to, towards them. And, you know, just like any other smell for people, like if you're into a certain smell, usually if a strain smells that way, that's usually the one for you as well. I, I, to me, it all smells good. I'm, sorry. <laughs> I, I'm not very discerning. What can I tell you guys? I have it, you know, I, and that's one of the reasons why I'm leaving my body to science. I don't know when that's going to happen, but I'm going to list all the things I took over 40, 50 years of usage and share that with the science community. And I have no problem if they want to dissect me like I did that frog in 10th grade. Um, Josh, what's going on in Washington State? You, you guys have had the um, the reputation of being one of the early adapters to legal cannabis, and yet I hear things about the state that they're not really. Um, it's not as fair as I thought it would be at this point in time of their maturity. Two things I think that are keeping investors out of the Washington State market is limited um, the limited ability. For for ownership, you can only have 10%. It's capped. And then it's anything over that is requires you to have residency. So you need to live here for six months in order to, to own anything more than that. So that obviously right off the bat is, is going to um, be a huge deterrent for people and then not being vertically integrated. So you have to either pick, are you going to do retail or are you going to grow and, or have a brand? And, you know, like Dr. David mentioned, uh, being jaded in the industry happens when you've been in it too long, or you have the experience that we do seeing folks that have first mover advantages in Washington state that have, have a heart, the license, they sold that to, uh, an Arizona based, um, company, an MSO, um, harvest health, maybe. Mm -hmm. So whoever they sold it to, they took the money, they went to uh, California, they bought, um, they worked with in partnership with a, um, social equity applicant. They ended up going to a business partner of the social equity applicant, paid them off, got the license, and then sold it. Very, very shady. Um, and, and the person holding the license had no idea that his business partner sold it from right out from underneath him. So it does kind of bring up um, some questions about like, where is that investment focus, knowing that there's limited license states? Because just like New Mexico being legislative, it's not hippies on the street saying, hey, let's sign this because we want it. It's saying, no, legislators, the, the, the bureaucrats are getting these the message from lobbyists saying, make this a limited license state so that we have a lot of opportunities to make a lot of money. And that's where a lot of investment focus is coming at. So, uh, Dr. David, you're going to be at a couple events coming up. You're going to be at MJ Impact in the fall in New York. Yep. If you're going to Northeast Cannes. Why are you going to those events and where is the investment focus? Are we seeing grows or brands or retail or is it delivery? And, uh, and, and before I answer that question, something else that I've seen, I've seen contracts where the minority, someone is a minority, they are trying to get a minority license, but once they get it, they have to turn over and switch the equity position within 90 days. Mm. Like, so like I've seen like contracts with subsidiary contracts, the side, I mean, there's a lot of shady, not very kosher stuff going on. But to answer your question, um, so this year right now, I am I am personally scheduled to attend, I want to say it's 16 cannabis conferences this year, not networking events, just conferences. Um, so the reason why I go in like to NECAN Boston is one, um, just New England is at its infancy stage compared to the West Coast. And if you take the surface area of New England, it's roughly half the surface area of the entire West Coast but twice the population. 
Mm -hmm. um, and people forget Maine is the second state to get medical marijuana back in 1999. So there's a lot of rules and regulations that Maine has really fought to get, which you see a lot of other states uh, starting to, to, to do. So in terms of those different conf like that conference, really attending to one, do our seminar that we're actually doing uh, on Saturday, how to raise your social capital to raise capital, but also to actually meet some clients, some new investors, and really what we're seeing investors putting their money towards. Um, a lot of individuals, their sweet spots like under 250,000. That's a lot of individual investor sweet spot where they say, okay, we can kind of wait three to four years for a potential uh, return on investments. Um, people that are raising, why did you say more than about $5 million? You're really going more so family offices, venture capitalists, maybe some uh, high net worth individuals. Um, and we're really seeing for the investors now is what is your management team first off? Hmm. And the second thing is what's your three-year plan, four-year plan more than just one facility. And we're seeing a big divide in investors right now. I don't pick on New York and New Jersey. Once again, I attended a couple of networking events last night in New York City. I was the only canvas guy there, which is great. And there are some people there that I met. They're like, hey, listen, this is how much money I have to invest. I don't care. Find me a deal somewhere in the country. Versus other people, which is no, I rah-rah New York. I will only do a business in New York and that's it. Hmm. So if you're an investor and someone's rah-rah about their only state and the, and the upside is capped and limited, well, it's a little bit harder to get that investment money. Um, we're not seeing so much in, uh, in grows or dispensaries as much, unless you have a plan to have multiple locations within a set period of time, then investors are happy with that. We're seeing a lot of ancillary services right now, and especially people that have ancillary services that have patents or patents are pending on technology or maybe a product. Uh, investors are really liking that. Um, and, that's what, and that's what we're seeing right now in, in the investment community in cannabis out here on the East Coast. How do, how do they feel about media companies? Anyway, hey, um, Kim, I want to get back to you. Uh, what David just described, is that your experience? You've got a privately held invest, investor-backed company. How many years have you been doing in this business? Yeah, so we, uh, we raised our seed round in 2018, and we did our first uh, license launch in, uh, later that year, 2018, in Massachusetts. So we've been you know, around doing this for four years-ish. Um, and we are a technology-focused, innovation-focused company, so we're all about uh, creating and licensing our intellectual property. So send them our way. We're actually not raising money um, right now. Um, we're just growing on our own steam, so we're, um, we, we, we're and, all about and, which, is, which is great, and kudos, Kim. And one of the biggest things we tell our clients here at UCS Advisors is, how much money do you need? And then how much do you need, like, in what tranches? And what do you need within 60 right. days, within, you know, six months, within nine months? Because a lot of people don't think that far ahead. Uh, uh, and I see you shaking your head because you're like, yeah, because that happens all, all the time. Um, yeah. <laughs> so my, I'm, a, I'm shaking my head. I'm a recovering venture capitalist. So I spent okay. most of my career investing in high tech startup companies and then sort of, you know, ended up in the cannabis world. And that's just, you know, mind blowing as an invest with my investor hat on. So right. Right. And, and, um, and so, someone like Kim with your background, and this goes back to Josh's question, hmm. like, and this is kind of what we do. We kind of help. Uh, tell the story backed by objective data. And mm -hmm. Kim's background doing venture capital, that puts her above so many other competitors looking to raise capital because she has the experience of actually deploying it, make sure it's utilized properly, seeing what the potential returns are. So she can really think about her investors ahead of time. So, you know, kudos to you. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a huge plus on your end. That's a great example of, you know, having a great management team already in place for a company. 
I'm learning by doing, let's just say here. Okay. Uh, I, I listen to you, David. I want to follow everything you say. And then reality strikes. And it's so tough to run a company and raise money for a company at the same time, isn't it? <laughs> it yes, it is. As someone that has started over 10 companies and I've raised money for 12 of my, actually 13 of my own companies. Yeah. Um, it is, it's difficult, but it's also about having the right people in place. It's also, as I tell people, do the work the first time. Yes, it might be the pain about to do your performer, your deck or whatever, but it's, you're going to have that for the next six months, roughly. So once you do it right, and like, I'm going to use Kim as an example, she's not raising money right now, but let's say she's like, hey, I need to raise $2 million. She can go back to what she did several years ago and use that as a, as a, as a reference point. And, and, and a jumping point. And, and this is where, in part we tell in our lecture, do you, there's a difference between lending and fundraising. Lending is just give me money and I'm lazy. Like here, here, here's my bank statements, here's my vision. Do you wanna give me money, yes or no? Fundraising is, is like networking, it takes constant work. Um, and literally this is where a lot of times uh, people out there will reach out to someone like us at UCS Advisors as investor relations experts mm -hmm. to literally hire us to help them and guide them so they don't waste their time on fundraising. Because if you raise your money properly, you can only, if you really want to, it's only gonna take a couple hours a week once you're organized and you have it set up. But if you don't, it can seem like you're constantly doing both. Why would they reach out to you? A lot of people don't know what investor relations is. Is it an investment banker? Is it public relations specialist? Can you explain? Sure. So um, most people can go to like a broker dealer. That's not what we are. We are investor relation experts. So in other words, we are investor relations advisors. So for publicly traded companies, we tend to work with the board of directors. Uh, we work with them to work on their short-term and long-term goals. For a company that's just starting out, trying to raise money, uh, the best analogy is this, Josh. Um, all of us here, I assume, have seen Shark Tank, right? Yeah. We are the ones that work with you before you get on Shark Tank to work on your pitch to work on how to talk to investors, to use the positive power of negative preparation so you know the gist of actually how to answer a potential investor's question. Um, and that's where an investor relations expert comes in. And it, it's, you don't need to hire someone full-time. We do our stuff by the hour and we offer a refund within six months if you're not happy with us. Because for, for us, it's about building that long lasting relationship. But this is where I tell people, your lawyer will hire someone like us and then upcharge you what they're paying us. Your business coach goes out and hires someone like us and then upcharge you to talk to us. So as I kind of tell people, you have your lawyer, you have your accountant, maybe you have your business coach. If you need to raise money, do fundraising, then you might want to get an investor relations expert to assist you with that. So, I don't and, know the it, <laughs> it, and here's a great example, Jimmy. And I used this last night in New York, someone needed money and they were pitching me. It was a real estate deal. And I was like, great. The guy's like, I don't need an investor relations expert. I got my pitch down on everything. I go, fine. I'm going to ask you one question right now because you have your pitch down. He's like, what is it? I go, tell me three objective points about your business that makes you different than your competitors. Huh? Oh, I can't do that. Oh, I got to go back and look at my notes. I'm like, so you're not prepared. I'm like, you just lost money right now. You just lost an opportunity of all the investors I represent because you're that sure. So, um, and that's where, once again, investor relations expert helps prepare you ahead of time. So anyone you talk to at any networking event, like Jimmy at NECAM Boston, so you can be prepared to talk to people say, oh, great, I'm looking to invest in opportunities. I, well, I'm an opportunity myself, so. 
I, I tell you, it, it, it's a, I, I love listening to you, David. I really do because it's like, okay, I can do that. I can do that. I haven't done that. I haven't done that. You know, and I just go down that list. But uh, first of all, we're, we're up against the, the top of the hour. David, um, tell us where people, if they want to take your seminar, you got, you know, here's the floor. Tell them how to get involved, get on the NECAN site and all that. Sure. Uh, so it's actually next Saturday, March 19th at 9 a.m. If you go to kneecan.com, click on boss, the Boston venue, and you'll see the workshops, how to raise your social capital to raise capital. Or uh, kneecan, next level, is our, is our website that takes you right to the page. Uh, everyone's asking, will we be done before Steve D'Angelo is a keynote speaker on Saturday at 12 p.m.? And the answer is yes. So you can come take our seminar, still make the keynote speaker. If you want to learn more about me, uh, David Kunick, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, the, at the end of my profile, it says, willing to achieve greatness. Just email me that message. And I know you read the profile and you're being serious. It's also a good way too, to make sure someone's not spamming you the, the email either. Um, our website, ucsadvisor.com. And we just launched a, a five minute quiz to see if you're ready to actually pitch to investors. And wow. if you can answer these 12 questions in six minutes or less with confidence, you're ready to pitch. If you need, if you can't, there's a good chance you're, you need some help. This yeah. sounds like a challenge. I got to go do that now. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah cool. I, I'm, at, I'm, I'm being full disclosure though, Kim. I, I, the website designer did not make the question super dark. So in the process of fixing that as we speak, but yeah, I tell people do that quiz. It's mm -hmm. six minutes and cool. people that have pitched are like, oh, six minutes, that's easy. People have not pitched like, oh my God, I can't do all this in, in six minutes. Like, well, you need to tweak things, Ed. <laughs> I can do I can do a lot of things in six minutes. Uh, Kim, how do people find out about Azuka? And uh, go ahead, name a few dispensaries in the Massachusetts area because we do have uh, some followers here. Yeah, um, azukatime.com is our website and you can sort of click in the, and, and get in touch with all of us. Um, let's see, some of our partners in Massachusetts are Temple Hill and Revolutionary Clinics. So there's some great, great folks up there. My original sponsor of my podcast from March of 2018, the Rev Clinics group. So uh, Keith, Keith Cooper is awesome. And I think you know everybody else there too. And by the way, a get well wish for Tom Schneider, who's really their COO, chief marketing officer. He did his vaccinations. He did his booster. He stayed away from people and he still got COVID this week. Okay. So while we all sit here and say, it's over, it's over. I'd like to think it's over, but you could still get it. So just be careful out there. Chef Nikki, how do they find you? Uh, so my website, K-I-T-H-C-E-N.co, not .com. Um, you can find out a bunch of information there. Also on my LinkedIn profile, Nicholas Escoto. Um, also on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. And I'm doing a event on April 2nd and in infused invite only if you want to find out any ways to get on that list just dm me on any of the social platforms and i'm looking to do a little bit of uh something that i call a hot box which is using utilizing other brands to kind of use either their non-infused formulations and different formulations to be involved in a box that consumers can enjoy with a three-course meal that they can do at their own home for holidays and so such fantastic yeah and and you know what I love the fact that all three of you, you're on my book of life, okay? Because you didn't know you were going to do this at the beginning of today. And I so appreciate you making the time and making yourselves available. Josh Kincaid, The Talking Hedge, where can people find you? TheTalkingHedge.com. We're on a podcast everywhere. So just look at The Talking Hedge. 
There you go. So for everybody here at Pro Cannabis Media, a reminder, our new show is coming up next on our network of social media platforms. So remember, it's a whole new world of weed out there, people. Use it responsibly. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Thank Coming up on We Talk News this week, WNBA superstar and Olympic champion Brittany Griner gets busted at a Russian airport for carrying hash oil. Retiring Colorado Congressman Ed Perlmutter vows to pester his Senate comrades until safe banking for cannabis gets passed. Plus, a new poll by the American Bankers Association gets 68% support. Plus, Costa Rica, France, and Thailand decriminalize cannabis while the USA cause gets ignored in the State of the Union address. All that and more on We Talk News next. Pro Cannabis Media original content is supported by Salient Systems, your trusted name in video surveillance for the cannabis industry, and by Revolutionary Clinics, Massachusetts' number one medical dispensary where the patient comes first. And by Accounting Buds, CPA services for the cannabis industry. And by Stylighting.shop. Log on today to get your grow kit. We are Pro Cannabis Media. everyone. Welcome to Weed Talk News. I'm Elena Pinto reporting for Pro Cannabis Media. Our top story this week, once again, comes from Russia, as all eyes are fixed upon the ongoing war with Ukraine. Some U.S. officials are now trying to make it a priority to bring Brittany Griner home. Griner is a seven-time WNBA champion, a two-time Olympic medalist, and now a Russian prisoner. A few days ago, Russian state media released video of Griner being detained at an airport for allegedly carrying vape cartridges with hashish oil inside. We're now learning the incident actually happened weeks ago, and Griner has been in Russian custody ever since. She could ultimately be charged with large-scale transportation of drugs, an offense that could put her behind bars in Russia for up to 10 years. U.S. diplomats are working to bring Reiner home, but they say it will not be easy. Seems uncanny to be locking someone up for a vape cartridge while a war ensues. But we send our best to Brittany Griner and hope she can make it home safely with the help of officials stateside. However, it doesn't seem President Biden will be the one to pipe up and save the day. In a not-so-shocking turn of events, cannabis was completely absent from the president's State of the Union address. The items that did make the top of the list included infrastructure, opioid abuse, and veteran care. Ironically, all things that could be aided by legalizing and regulating cannabis. Go figure. Despite that, efforts to protect the plant and the dollar surrounding it are still going strong. A new poll from the American Bankers Association shows 68% of Americans want Congress to pass some form of legislation that protects banks that work with cannabis companies. But lawmakers on Capitol Hill still don't seem to be interested. Congress just filed a new spending bill this week, and language to protect banks is nowhere to be found. 
after we just battled six times to have the Safe Banking Act heard on the Hill. Co-sponsor of that bill, Colorado Rep Ed Perlmutter, says he plans to pester members of Congress about adding that language until it's done. However, many cannabis advocates are saying they need Perlmutter to be more than a pest and actually get this legislation passed once and for all. Vote Pro Podcast's Phil Adams has more on what's happening in the nation's capital this week. Phil. Hi, I'm Phil Adams from Vote Pro Podcast, and this is the Weed Talk News DC Report. An omnibus spending bill was introduced in Congress this week that once again includes a ban on recreational cannabis sales in DC. The provision known as the Harris Rider prevents the District of Columbia from using local tax dollars to set up a legal cannabis market. A number of cannabis advocates and lawmakers have expressed their disappointment. In a press release, Toy Hutchinson, president and CEO of the Marijuana Policy Project said, quote, Entrepreneurs who live in this minority-majority community are denied the ability to open businesses that are available in every other legal cannabis jurisdiction. Although D.C. legalized possession and home cultivation back in 2014, that same year, Representative Andy Harris of Maryland sponsored the rider, which passed as part of that year's spending bill. The Harris rider has been renewed every year since then. Legislation is now pending that would allow Veterans Administration doctors and patients to talk openly about medical cannabis. The proposal, sponsored by Representative Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, protects veterans who participate in state legal medical cannabis programs from losing their eligibility for VA healthcare services. VA doctors would be required to honor the desires of their patients who seek alternative forms of treatment, including cannabis. They would also be authorized to discuss medical marijuana treatment options with patients. Representative Ed Perlmutter of Colorado appears willing to discuss his Secure and Fair Enforcement Banking Act with anyone in Congress who will listen and to attach the safe banking language to any bill being considered. In February, he was able to get the language inserted into the large scale America Competes Act, which now awaits a final vote. Last year, Perlmutter attempted to attach the language into the National Defense Authorization Act, though it was later stripped from the bill. Back in 2020, Perlmutter was able to get the language attached to two of the House-passed COVID relief packages, though it didn't make it into either final version. Perlmutter told the House Rules Committee point blank he intends to offer the safe banking provision as an amendment to, quote, every single bill I possibly can until it's passed. That's the Weed Talk News DC report for this week. I'm Phil Adams from Vote Pro Podcast. There is good news this week as other countries around the globe make moves with marijuana. Costa Rica has legalized medical marijuana across the country, and France is also tiptoeing into the medical industry. The country's government issued a decree last month that authorizes cultivation of medical cannabis. And now they're working on developing the full industry. And in Thailand, health officials seem hopeful that the legalization of cannabis will help the country's tourism market flourish once again. Now let's get a check on what's happening in Europe this week. Here's Stephen Arthur George. I'm Stephen Arthur George with SAG Advisory Services in Lisbon, Portugal. This is the European Cannabis Report for Weed Talk News. France is having a bit of FOMO when it comes to medical cannabis. As of March 1st, 
a new decree law entered into force for medical cannabis regulations. That being said, the regulators still need to implement it locally. But France will allow the cultivation, production, manufacture, transport, and import-export of medical cannabis. Over across the pond in Canada, two Canadian companies receive European GMP certification. Pearson Farms and Zeus receive EU GMP from Germany and Portugal regulators, respectively. This will allow both companies to export to Europe as well as other global markets. On the other hand, Canadian producers will start to face increased competition as more cultivators, producers, and manufacturers come online here in Europe. Over in the Netherlands, Zebra is on track to deliver the first harvest to the Dutch government. The Canadian-based company was awarded one of the five licenses in the Netherlands. They are growing one high-THC flower as well as another one-to-one THC and CBD flower. As soon as the harvest is complete, they will submit samples to the Dutch government for further analysis. That's the European Cannabis Report. I'm Stephen Arthur George from SAG Advisory Services for Read Talk News. Back in the U.S., one state may have found a loophole when it comes to cannabis transactions. Dreamer Cannabis, a dispensary in Southampton, Massachusetts, is moving away from all cash operations and letting people buy cannabis with their credit card. The shop has started using a third-party platform that allows customers to enter their credit card information via a smartphone app. And apparently, it's allowing Dreamer Cannabis to operate without fear of federal interference with their money. Ron Marshall C. has more from the Bay State in this week's Massachusetts Report. I'm Ron Marshall C. with the Massachusetts Cannabis Report for Weed Talk News. Dreamer Cannabis in Southampton, an adult-use cannabis dispensary in Massachusetts, is moving away from all-cash operations. They have begun using a third-party platform that allows customers to buy state-legal cannabis products via credit cards. This is a workaround of policies in place by most banks and major credit card agencies that ban transactions on cannabis, which remains federally illegal. Most state legal cannabis dispensaries only accept cash or debit. Merimed, a leading multi-state cannabis operator, announced it signed a definitive agreement to acquire a provisional dispensary license from Greenhouse Naturals. The transaction will add a second retail location to Merimed's cannabis operations in Massachusetts. Bob Fireman, chief executive officer of Merimed, was quoted as saying, Adding a second adult-use dispensary in Massachusetts is a key element of our long-term strategic growth plan, continuing our efforts to expand deeper in high-growth states in which we already operate. We expect the Beverly location to be a particularly strong performer in our growing footprint. We anticipate it will contribute this year to our revenue and adjusted EBITDA growth. Merrimed also anticipates the Beverly adult-use dispensary will be operational during the second half of 2022. And finally, a third recreational dispensary could be coming to Rockland. The Rockland Board of Selectmen has authorized a host community agreement that will allow a marijuana store to open at 1015 Hingham Street. This new store will join Canavana and Health Circle in serving cannabis to the people in and around Rockland. That's this week's Massachusetts Cannabis Report. For Weed Talk News, I'm Ron Marshallsey. Bay State Cannabis Report is supported by Holyoke Cannabis, Holyoke's finest cannabis recreational experience. 
a battle brewing between MSOs, MedMen, and Ascend Wellness are locked in a litigious back and forth. Under a deal announced last year, Ascend would acquire a nearly 87% interest in MedMen's New York cannabis business, with an option to acquire the remainder after the launch of the adult use market. But Ascend has since filed a lawsuit claiming MedMen materially breached the deal, and Ascend CEO addressed shareholders about it this week. Deborah Borchardt has the details in this week's Green Market Report. This is the business update for Weed Talk News from the Green Market Report. Okay, not a lot of great news in the business world this week for cannabis. Greenlane said it was selling its headquarters and laying off employees and making leadership changes in order for the company to become profitable. Now, having said that, they did say they expect net sales to be between $55 million and $56 million for the fourth quarter and between roughly $165 million and $166 million for the full year. Ascend Wellness reported that its fourth quarter revenue decreased 6.2% sequentially to $88 million. Now, that sequential decline was driven by lower prices in the wholesale market. However, on a good note, the full-year revenue rose 133% to $332 million. And finally, the Scott's miracle Grow company lowered its full-year sales guidance for its hydroponic Hawthorne division. In addition, Scott said that the reduction would likely lead to adjusted earnings per share that are lower than previously expected. Scott expects that the Hawthorne sales could decline 15 to 25%, and that's including acquisitions. And that's it for this week. I'm Deborah Borchardt for the Green Market Report for We Talk News. Also on the East Coast, the idea of gifting weed may be going up in smoke for people in Connecticut. A new House bill introduced this week would outlaw gifting cannabis in any scenario where a donation is made and would prohibit any transfers of cannabis outside of a licensed retailer. It would also nix companies' abilities to advertise on billboards. And the budding legal markets in the Mid-Atlantic region are causing some workers to reach out for more resources. New reports show cannabis employees in New Jersey and Maryland are beginning to reach out for union representation within the industry. With more from the East Coast, Claudia Post has this week's Pennsylvania report. I'm Claudia Post from Scarlet Express, and I'm here in the Keystone State, Pennsylvania, reporting for We Talk News. Pennsylvania Democratic gubernatorial candidate Josh Shapiro is running on a pro-cannabis ticket. Naturally, he blames the Republicans for stalling and says the only thing they're interested in is their own self-interest and their wealthy constituents. Who would have thought? A York County-based company called Groff North America last month said it became the first such business in the country to bring a cannabis crop to market for scientific study. That's an amazing thing because previously since 1968, researchers were restricted to only purchasing from the University of Mississippi. What a ridiculous thing. Originally a hemp company, the Pennsylvania firm was one of just four companies nationally to win approval from the DEA to sell their product for medical and scientific purposes. For the first time, real world marijuana will be available to researchers throughout the country. And that is a really cool thing. Pennsylvania is expanding areas of its medical cannabis program 
to help advance research and decrease costs for patients. Currently, they have to pay a doctor, they have to pay for the, for the privilege of getting a card, and for uh, our citizens in more challenged communities, that's just, you know, drives people to the street. So this is a great thing. The Department of Health is making financial assistance more widely available for patients and has also announced there will be a ninth clinical registrant here in Pennsylvania for the medical marijuana research program. Our program will eliminate annual fees, eliminate all background checks for eligible caregivers, and distribute funding to each patient in the financial hardship program. Well, that's a wrap for this week from Pennsylvania. I'm Claudia Post from Scarlet Express, and I'll be back next week to talk about what's hot and what's not in Pennsylvania. From We Talk News, have a fabulous week. Moving to the Midwest now, and people in the Show Me State want lawmakers to show them the weed. In Missouri, the Cannabis Freedom Act to legalize adult use is set to appear on this November's ballot. But this week, advocates took to the state capitol, demanding lawmakers take action sooner than that. Brandon Jones has much more in this week's Missouri Report. Hey, everybody. It's Brandon Jones here again from Distribution Maven with Missouri Cannabis Report for Weed Talk News. And yeah, it's been a very big week here in Missouri, down at Jefferson City, the state capitol. They actually let people speak on both the positive and the negative for the Cannabis Freedom Act here. It's going to go on the ballot, like they said here this next month. So the big things about this act is it would have recreational use allowed throughout the state starting January of 2023. And then the second thing is anybody can actually have a dispensary in the state that has just uh, filed their taxes here in the state of Missouri, just like any other business. They wouldn't have to go through the big licensing uh, loop, loops that there are now to find to figure out how you can actually get a license. So for my, my good buddy, Brennan England for Minorities for Medical Marijuana spoke and said that this was a big thing to allow access to minorities versus having to have you know a big bankroll and having to have all this legislation and, and help from you know a legal team to get actual access to have a dispensary here in the state. Another big thing is they're going to have an actual um, rally on the 29th at the state to bring more access and more awareness to this to what's actually going on here and see if we can get more people involved. And there is still two more weeks you can actually reach out, reach out to your lawmakers and let them know how you feel about this act. So please do. I'm again, I'm Brandon Jones from Distribution Maven from Missouri Cannabis Report for Weed Talk News. Thanks a lot, everybody, and have a great week. In Washington state, regulators will finally start requiring pesticide testing on all adult use cannabis products, a standard most legal programs already have. Washington state does already test medical marijuana for pesticides, and now those same standards will be applied to everyone's weed. I'm Josh Kincaid from the Talking Hedge with the Washington State Cannabis Report for Weed Talk News. Washingtonians are seeking to remove restrictive requirements for non-resident cannabis investors. State law currently requires all cannabis investors to have established residency in Washington State for at least six months. As a result, local companies are undercapitalized and without funding will largely be left out of the national market when legalization occurs. During the past several years, measurements have been introduced to remove the residency requirement, but so far, They've all failed to advance. Similar stagnant cannabis-related bills signal that the legislators' reluctance to act without federal guidance and assurances. Overturning general residency requirements will usher in a new era of expansion for multi-state operators 
as well as offer an exit strategy for those business owners who have benefited from the period of protectionism, yet are too tired to compete for local market share against the budgets of behemoth MSOs. Next week, you guys are going to find about Washington State's Cannabis Research Commission, but with that, we're going to have to roll up this Washington State Cannabis Report. I'm Josh Kincaid from the Talking Head, reporter for We Talk News. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Thank you, Elena. It's time for the Florida Report from We Talk News, and I'm Heather Allman from Cannabis Law Report. During COVID until June 2021, existing medical cannabis patients were allowed to renew their medical certifications remotely via emergency order. But the hope that these telehealth consultations would be permanent went up in smoke last week. Joint legislation SB-164 and HB-333 by Senator Jeff Brandis and Representative J.R. Williamson proposed that while patients would still have to receive an in-person consultation before receiving their initial cannabis certification, they could continue meeting with their physician remotely via video chat, phone, text, or email. Unfortunately for those seeking that easier route to cannabis relief, the 2022 session was quite the buzzkill to those plans. And with cannabis-friendly Brandis reaching term limits later this year, we'll have to see who takes up that cause moving forward. And while we're talking about the legislation, Florida lawmakers keep chipping away at the ballot or citizens' initiative process. It has often been employed on issues the legislature refused to pass. Let me tell you, Floridians from all walks of life have been able to use their constitutional right to direct democracy in Florida and to improve the state for the better. Unfortunately for us, the legislature disagrees. With the week to go in the 2022 session, Florida lawmakers are considering a series of measures to push the Republican leaders' years-long battle to make it harder for groups to change the state constitution, although they don't seem to have a problem doing so themselves. For more than a decade, the ballot initiative process has been utilized to legalize medical marijuana, increase the minimum wage, and limit the expansion of gambling in the state. Yet lawmakers have consistently made efforts to block measures from going before voters and amending the Constitution. So far, our GOP-controlled legislature has increased the number of signatures required on initiatives to be placed on a ballot. They have banned sponsors from paying petition gatherers by the signature, a move that experts say has dramatically driven the cost of amendment drives up. And next, they shrank the length of time signatures are valid from four years to only two years, meaning the signatures can only be used for one election cycle, again, driving up costs. For the trifecta, the legislature tucked a separate law into a sweeping Senate elections package affecting the Florida Supreme Court reviews of proposed amendments. This is supposedly ensuring that proposal wording meets legal standards before being presented to voters. Currently, we have SB 524 that would require the Attorney General to withdraw requests for court reviews if proposals don't submit enough signatures to qualify for the ballot before that February 1st deadline. All of these are in the state's effort to restrict ballot and citizen initiatives. The ACLU of Florida says they are opposing all of these constitutional changes, labeling them death by a thousand cuts. Let's hope the next legislative session sees more positive change for Floridians than it has this year. In other news, in case you haven't heard, the Emerald Cup launched a new canvas classification system for the 2022 awards. The revolution underway at the Emerald Cup regards how they will assess excellence in cannabis, and with it comes a new system that will universally classify cannabis based on terpenes, flavor, and effects. 
The days of simply seeking out the highest THC total is rapidly fading as science has converged and finally proven that terpenes are at the root of the entourage effect customers are seeking. However, terpenes with their unfamiliar names and mysterious effects have mostly added another layer of consumer confusion to an already complicated, overly broad indica sativa hybrid simplification, whimsical strain names, and irrelevant THC percentages. The new Emerald Cup terpene-based classification can be easily used by consumers, bud tenders, dispensaries, judges, and growers, and will eventually trickle down to impact dispensary menus across the country. In preparation, the Medical Marijuana Treatment Clinics of Florida sponsored an informative educational webinar on Wednesday, March 9th, called Focus on Terpenes. The series host, Mark Matoza, was joined by guest speaker Nick Manjinski from Move by Verano, and participants learned about the terpenes found in cannabis and in the natural world, but more importantly, they found out how the right terpenes can match a condition and can increase the efficacy of medical cannabis products. Let's hope the new terpene chart can help. That's a wrap for the We Talk News Florida Report. I'm Heather Allman from Cannabis Law Report. Have a great week ahead. And finally, is it time for cannabis companies to throw in the towel when it comes to advertising on Instagram? No secret that Instagram doesn't love cannabis content. Unless you're a multi-million dollar company, you can almost guarantee the algorithm will shadow ban you in some way if you share content relating to cannabis. So streaming service Twitch is looking to take over. A recent report dove into the potential the platform has for cannabis marketing. And with no algorithm and no interference with those following local laws, Twitch is pretty much the perfect place to push your pot products. From gamers who interact with their audience on a personal level to the possibility for product giveaways and reveals, if you've struggled with social media marketing lately, you might want to befriend a streamer and turn your sites to Twitch. After all, it's a whole new world of weed out there, so use it wisely and to your best advantage. That does it for Weed Talk News this week. I'm Elena Pinto for Pro Cannabis Media. See you next time. Hi, my name's Kai Chang. I'm the president and founder of Aloha Green Apothecary in Hawaii. We're a vertically integrated medical cannabis company with three dispensaries, uh, one extraction lab, and one cultivation center near the North Shore of Oahu. We have over 150 employees now, and we've been working with Adaptive HR to meet our, meet our human resource needs. We're super excited to work with them as we expand, and we've grown uh, at least two, three times over the last two years. So we look forward to a good relationship with Adaptive, and uh, come visit us in Hawaii anytime. Aloha. Talk and In the Weeds are two productions of Pro Cannabis Media supported by Revolutionary Clinics, one of the top medical cannabis dispensaries in the Massachusetts area, now with three locations in Greater Boston, two in Cambridge, and one on Broadway in Somerville. Rev Clinics has a patient-first mission. They will customize your needs as a medical patient with the proper titration and combination of strains, flavors, and products. Rev Clinics, where the patient comes first. Difference is building a solution for that individual. 
not just a custom, here's a box, here's a video, here's how you make your VMS. We custom design and custom build every situation for exactly what the customer needs. And we keep the cost low. We have multiple tiers, you know, as far as what you're looking at on the cost side of things. Do you want a one-time, you know, where you just pay one initial cost? We have that. Do you want to maintain your system and have the highest protection and highest capabilities and highest upgrades at all times? We have different plans for you, but we scale it so it's scalable and affordable 100%. Hey, you want to grow your own plants? Check out Style Lighting's Grow Kit. It has everything you need to become an expert home grower and bring the power of the sun indoors. Style Lighting uses TCP's high-powered commercial LEDs that deliver twice the output in the market. The Grow Kit has a grow bag, a timer, chains to hang the light, and of course the best-in-the-business lighting system by TCP. Check out stylelighting.shop for more information. Meet Caduceus Science, the alternative wellness company. You know CBD, but how about CBG, CBN? That's right, Caduceus Science produces a range of full-spectrum products, all lab-tested in small batches to maintain the highest quality of products. CaduceusScience.com Cannabis Media Programming is available live and on demand on our Facebook page at ProCanna Media, on Instagram at ProCannabis Media, on LinkedIn also at ProCannabis Media, on YouTube and YouTube Live on ProCannabis Media, Twitter at ProCanna Media, and on twitch.tv backslash ProCannabis Media. So like, share, and subscribe to all of our content, newsletters, and shows live or on demand. We are pro-cannabis media. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Elland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. 
We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.